Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I'm your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me is my good Judy, friend of the pod, former guest, future guest, fan of the pod, Mr. Andrew Melendez. Hello, Andrew. Hi, everyone. Hello, Matthew. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for coming on the inaugural episode of the Broadway Breakdown Rebirth. What an honor. What a pleasure. What a joy. It is the Order of the Phoenix, one might say. Sure. What are we discussing today? Oh, today we are discussing the... Bernstein and Sondheim and Fosse. No. Fosse girl. <laughs> Let's do that again. That is a razor. <laughs> this is all being kept. Who choreographed this? Jerome Robbins, oh. you stupid bitch. We are discussing the Broadway musical West Side Story. Yes. A collaboration between Sondheim, Bernstein, and Jerome Robbins. And lest we forget Arthur Lawrence, because even though he's dead, he will not let you forget that he wrote <laughs> Sperm to Worm. He will never let anyone forget it. Well, I definitely forgot it. So, Honestly, that's my favorite thing about you. Uh, don't worry. Lawrence is going to pop up a couple of times in this series. Again, for better and for worse. Um, yeah, we're talking about West Side Story. That's the first episode in this long, long series. I sent you a couple of clips to get you back in the West Side Story mood. Uh, We will be discussing the show, its inception, its legacy, some of the revivals, and we'll also be talking about the movie. This is probably the only episode where we're going to get to the movie because the movie is actually very important to the legacy of the show, more so than most musicals, I'd say. Um, What was your exposure to West Side before this episode? How did you first come about it? So, um... When I was in high school, basically, I knew very little about musical theater. But then when I started learning about it, it was all like Spring Awakening and Bear the Musical. And then, of course, The King and I, because like we happened to do that my senior year of high school. Sure. Um, But um, I don't know uh, what the, you know, median age of your listeners is, but... You know, Anywhere between point... <laughs> 15 and 92, as far as I'm aware. You know, at one point, believe it or not, Netflix used to not be a streaming service, and they actually would ship DVDs to your home. So after my parents uh, subscribed to Netflix after its inception, um, one of the first DVDs I ordered was West Side Story. And I remember sitting in my little bedroom and putting West Side Story in and almost promptly falling asleep because I was so bored because I was used to listening to Spring Awakening and Bear the Musical. Sure. And I was like, what is this, first of all? And second of all, I just felt, felt like I had no way into it. Mm-hmm. So that was the very first time I ever tried to watch West Side Story. And okay. then I'm sure I visited it again 
as an adult, like once I started college and like started actually studying musical theater. Mm -hmm. Um, And then probably the last time it crossed my mind was last week when you asked me if I wanted to be on the pod. (laughs) (laughs) So you weren't super familiar with the show then? No, and like not, I'm, yeah, it's definitely not a show I'm intimate with. Right. It's, well, I mean, it is a show that looms large. So if you know theater, you know of it at the very least, how intimate your knowledge goes Exactly. If you are a musical theater gay, Mm -hmm. you have at one point sung Something's Coming in a Voice Lesson. Absolutely. Or if you're me, I feel pretty. (laughs) I sang that for so many recitals. Oh, did you sing the English or the Spanish version? Uh, When I was a little boy, the Spanish version didn't exist. Hmm. And I'm also joking, I never sang I Feel Pretty in public. In my room, (laughs) plenty of times. But always the English version. My experience with One Side Story goes pretty young. I famously have parents who loved to expose me to theater. I famously come from a very long long line of theater-going Jews. We all are New York-based. We all love the theater. People in my family are involved in theater in numerous ways. And I remember having the cast recording and loving it and... Cheetah Rivera is sort of canon on my dad's side of the family. There are certain Broadway performers that are just like can do no wrong as far as my dad's side of the family is concerned for both like professional and personal reasons. They, Cheetah happened to know members of my dad's side of the family because... Of course she did. Well, I don't think I've actually ever discussed this. My grandfather, my dad's father... Was an institution of Broadway, of course. Yes, he was. Well, so I've mentioned it before. My mom's father was a, was an entertainment lawyer. So like was very close friends with Jerry Bach and Martin Charnin and went to many, many an opening night. But my dad's father was a dentist. Now, here's where it gets interesting. His clients were a lot of Broadway people. Of course. So dentist he, to the stars. Dentist to the stars. I mean, so first of all, we're talking Charles Nelson Riley, who famously none of the queens on Drag Race knew about the other day. <laughs> but also Robert Morris, who was the original J. Pierpont Finch in How to Succeed, Cheetah Rivera, Robert Goulet, and then to the big ones, Liza Minnelli and Pete, Peter Allen when they were married. Wow, inside the mouths of many an entertainer. Absolutely. Herb Gardner, who wrote A Thousand Clowns and I'm Not Rappaport. But so Cheetah was like a longtime client, and therefore my dad's side of the family, Cheetah Rivera and Robert Morse, Bobby as they call him, are like the two people who like never, they had duds, but they were never duds in anything. But so... I knew about Cheetah being in Westside, and I knew the legacy of that. I think my first production that I saw was at the JCC in Tenafly, <laughs> New Jersey. I remember nothing about it. I remember watching the movie and liking it. And then I did West Side Story at Stage Romantic Performing Arts Camp, where I famously was a shark in, uh, in bronzer. Uh, yes. If that wasn't bad enough. How many, Chino? How many, Chino? If that wasn't bad enough, <laughs> two years later, I would be... Ching Ho and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Ooh. Never again. I, I yeah, take, just put that on your resume. I take full responsibility <laughs> for accepting those roles at a time when people didn't blink twice about it. Uh, I mean, if we're going to call you out, I'm going to call myself out. When I was a senior in high school and we did The King and I, I was the king. Right. What's wrong with that? Anyone who's, any anyone who's not white is the same, according to Broadway. I very, promptly have del- I very recently deleted all those photos from my Facebook mm-hmm. because I don't want to be canceled. Well... I appreciate that. <laughs> I think I deleted all of mine. I can't remember. But I will say, before the year, like, t- honestly, before 2010, let's be perfectly honest. Before 2010, it was a very weird relationship that theater had with race. And we'll get to all that with West Side Story. 
But yeah, the last time I watched the movie actually was when we did it at Stage Door and we all really didn't like it. And so I always had in my brain that the movie was bad. And then I saw the revival in 09. I remember not liking it and thinking, oh, maybe West Side Story is just bad. And then when I got ready to do this podcast, I like got back into it. I was like, oh, it's actually quite good. And the movie's better than I remembered. But I understand why you fell asleep when you first watched it. And I, I, I love to say on this podcast, we'll get to it. But truly, we'll get to it. We have a lot of things to get through. But yeah, it's West Side Story is, is an interesting legacy because it's both revered and reviled in a lot of ways. And I'll be interested to hear your thoughts as we barrel through. But first things first, let's do a quick little bio on Mr. Stephen Sondheim for those who aren't as in the know. And it'll help give some context towards his career as we move forward through these episodes. Full disclosure, my brain is sort of scrambled because I've been cramming a lot of Sondheim in the last week and a half as I've been scheduling people. I'm recording Andrew today. I'll be recording A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum tomorrow. Uh, and I'm recording Gypsy the day after that. Then the following week is Anyone Can Whistle, Do I Hear Waltz, and I think Follies. Maybe Little Night Music. I can't remember. It's just a lot. It's going to be a lot. Busy, busy. Bit she busy. So I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know that famous song in West Side Story comedy tonight. And it's like, <laughs> no, girl. No, 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 no. But yeah, it, it I want to sort of with this with these episodes, we're going to discuss the sort of process that got the show to where it was, what the show is. We'll go through like you know songs and plots and whatnot, and then the aftermath, where it stands in the in the Broadway history. You ready? I'm ready. Uh, Estoy listo. Oh wait, as oh, wait. they would say in West Side Story, this 2009 revival. Estoy listo. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Wait, actually, before we go any further, Andrew, I believe you have an apology to make to our listeners. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the primary reason I agreed to come back on the pod is because in the last episode I guessed it on, which was the episode about Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, Matthew asked me, Andrew, tell us what Hamilton is about. Summarize what Hamilton is. What is the plot of Hamilton? And I gave probably the worst most stumbling, embarrassing answer I could have possibly given. And I just want to apologize for that. It was terrible. I was so nervous that day and I was trying so hard to be smart and I couldn't even tell you what the plot of Hamilton was. I'm going to be better today. I promise today I will be better. That is one of the themes of West Side Story. And if you want to hear Andrew's truly interesting account of what Hamilton's about, you can go back and listen to that episode. Oh, boy. Some of you might have already listened to it. Go back and listen again. <laughs> Bobo the Clown. That's how you get more listens, Andrew. That's how that algorithm works in your favor. Mr. Stephen Sondheim, born March 22nd, 1930, five days before my birthday, but 60 years prior. Twins. Twinsies. Grew up in the Upper West Side. He's a city kid, born and raised from a pretty well-to-do Jewish family. His parents got divorced when he was pretty young. His dad found another woman. His mother famously never remarried and moved him out to a farm in Pennsylvania. This ended up being a good thing because uh, he found out, or rather his mother found out, that they lived right next to the family of Oscar Hammerstein II of Rodgers and Hammerstein. How fortuitous. How fortuitous. He does say, like, I don't know if I would have gotten into theater if it wasn't for Oscar Hammerstein because his his parents did not really pay him a lot of attention. His dad was nicer than his mom, but didn't really have a lot of uh, parental love. 
and Oscar Hammerstein pretty much gave that to him. He became good friends with Oscar's son, but then actually got closer to Oscar Hammerstein and sort of fell in love with theater through osmosis. During this time, uh, he kind of started tampering with writing himself. One of my favorite stories about Sondheim, I don't know if you know this, but when he was in school, high school, he was at the George School, and he wrote a musical for the school called By George, which was very well received at the school. And he's thinking, like, I'm pretty, pretty hot shit. So he sends the work to Oscar, and he wrote, you know, books, lyrics, music, everything. And he said, I want you to judge this like it just came across your desk. And he's thinking, I'm going to get produced on Broadway by the time I'm 15. Go me. And Oscar Hammerstein reads it, and he goes, okay, Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. This is the worst thing I've ever read. <laughs> now, I didn't tell you, I'm not saying that it doesn't have potential, but it's the worst thing I've ever read, and let me tell you why. And then proceeds <laughs> to tell him all the things that are wrong with it, and sometimes says that's the most he's ever learned about writing and theater in one day. He's learned many things since then, but like, in terms of the amount of knowledge he obtained in a single 24 hours, that was it. Which I like. It, I feel like that's sort of the justification I give myself for any time I give constructive criticism or as they say in happy endings fearless feedback about shows or performances because if everyone gets a participation medal how do we grow truly yeah yeah loved williams or i should say he graduated williams didn't like flee and was able to get work as a television writer for a tv show called topper for about a year and then finally got uh, a gig writing for a show that would become Saturday Night, which wouldn't get produced in New York until 2000. And Saturday Night is important because it's what gets him the job for West Side Story. Do you know Saturday Night at all? I don't. Okay. That's where this story is. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, there's really only one famous song from it, and it's called What More Do I Need? Um, uh, uh, how does it go? Um, uh, an aeroplane runs across the way, but I can hear you as clear oh, as yes, day. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yep. Okay, yes. I'm familiar said, with the song. Me. I heard it in many a recital at yes. NYU. And I'll talk about what more do I need during the Saturday night episode, which is going to be <laughs> way, way later. Because while that's the first show he started to write, it does not get produced for decades. <laughs> Uh, sa uh, Saturday Night was based off of a screenplay called Front Porch and Flatbush that I don't think ever got made into a movie, but it was by the writers of Casablanca. And Sondheim got uh, hired to do it because the person who was going to... I, these are like the stories that I love where it's just like right place, right time. Sondheim met the guy who was going to produce uh, Saturday Night. His name was Lemuel Ayers. Ayers? Hmm? I don't know. You know, decently successful producer. He did the original Kiss Me Kate. And they met at a wedding where they were both ushers. Huh. And they were talking. Sondheim's like, yeah, I really want to you know, be a composer, lyricist. And I guess because he had Oscar Hammerstein, they'd be like, yeah, no, he's got a lot of promise. Ayers was like, send me some stuff. So he sent him some stuff. And Ayers is like, write the score for your first Broadway musical. And Sondheim's like, oh, my God, I'm going to write my <laughs> first Broadway score by the, before I'm 30. And then what happened was that the uh, producer died. And they didn't have enough money at the time to just, like, go ahead. And the producer's widow got the rights, and she didn't know what to do with it. So they're like, well, it's fucked. Mm. But... Sondheim uh, was able to use the score as a way to audition for other shows. He had, you know, this full score. And he auditioned for Jerome Robbins, Arthur Lawrence, and Leonard Bernstein on a little show called Serenade. <laughs> wow, you really got me there. I, I did. The anticipation. Right? I was about to say in unison with you. In tandem. In tandem. Well, yeah. 
I was I was gonna make a joke. I'm like, if we're really talking about what the show was at the time, it would have been East Side Story, not West Side Story. But it, I think it was West Side by that point. No, Serenade. Now you don't know Serenade because Serenade never became a musical. <laughs> it became a movie, which is sort of how the project that that Sondheim was auditioning for didn't end up happening. It Serenade's a weird thing. It was based on a book, and the book was about a New York opera singer, male opera singer, who lost his voice after having his first gay sexual experience, runs off to Mexico thinking he's gay, then has sex with a female prostitute, gets his voice back, and then he and the female prostitute go back to New York where they run into the guy that he first had sex with and the prostitute kills that guy out of jealousy. That's exactly what my first time was like. That was with me. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm, I am simply a spirit. <laughs> the Blythe spirit, even? Mm, the Blythe Danner spirit. <laughs> Blythe Danner, mother of Gwyneth Paltrow, for all of you uneducated gamin out there. Me. Yeah, you. I know you. Basically, that project never came to be. It went on to become a movie where, of course, the whole gay plot line got cut because it was the 50s. But Arthur Lawrence was working on the show that would become West Side Story with Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins and ran into Stephen Sondheim at a party. And he was like, yeah, we're looking for a lyricist. Betty Comden and Adolph Green turned it down because they're making a movie. And Sondheim was like, oh, who's writing the lyrics then? And Arthur Lawrence smites his head and goes, why didn't I think of you? I heard when I heard the Saturday Night score, your music sucks, but I loved your lyrics. (laughs) Which, you know, as you do. You have Oscar Hammerstein and Arthur Lawrence telling you the things that suck about you, and you eventually become Stephen Sondheim. West Side Story started off as an idea from Jerome Robbins, who was taking classes at the actor's studio when his friend, sources say it was Montgomery Clift, who was a big movie star at the time, closeted movie star at the time, star of Place in the Sun, and I believe From Here to Eternity? Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I'm a bad gay. Yeah, I rarely quote you anyway, so... No one quotes me. No one has ever quoted me. <laughs> I'm quotable. I'm funny, damn it. People will quote Nene Leakes, but they won't quote me. Ooh, don't bring Nene into this. <laughs> well, she she did come up with I said what I said. I said what I said. Which I pr- appreciate. That's very quotable. But then, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anymore. What is life? I'm very hungry. <laughs> I haven't eaten in like six hours. Yeah, he's wasting away before me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Basically, uh, Montgomery Clift, if that's the source you want to believe, was going to be playing Romeo somewhere, or maybe it was for class, and he asked Jerome Robbins, like, how does one play Romeo? Like, how would you get into this role? The role feels like kind of a dud, which if you ever read Romeo and Juliet, it is a dud. Romeo and Juliet are kind of stock characters. She's a little bit better than he is because she's smarter than he is, but he's basically like, I love you. I want to fuck now. And she's like, yeah, hold on a second. Our families hate each other. (laughs) She has a little more sense. And Jerome Robbins thought about modernizing the story, which then got him excited. So he roped Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence into it. The idea at the time was going to be East Side Story, and it was going to be between, it was going to be a contrast between um, Jewish and Catholic families. And there was a very famous Broadway play at the time called Abe's Irish Rose, which was basically about like I think a Catholic girl, no, a Jewish girl who was going to marry a Catholic boy, something like that. And it was a comedy and ran for a long time. And Arthur Lawrence said, "No, I don't want to do Abe's Irish Rose, the musical. I don't." I don't desire that. And he ended the writing of it from that moment, uh, which was pretty bold considering that Arthur Lawrence didn't have a lot of ground to stand on. He didn't have a lot of success as a Broadway playwright. At that point, I think he had three plays that all bombed. Uh, He had better luck writing screenplays. Later on, he would write The Way We Were and The Turning Point. So, you Uh. know, 
What? Which one is the, was? Do you love way we the were? Way we were. Of course. Of hello, Robert Redford. You don't know who the fuck Charles Nelson Riley is, but you love the way we were. <laughs> you are a goddamn basic hoe, you know and what? you only know the way we were because of Sex in the City. Admit it. That is not true. Admit it. <laughs> that is not because true. Sarah Jessica Parker told you about Sarah it. Sarah Jessica Parker told me shit. <laughs> but you know what we're talking about is <laughs> West not Side Story. West Side Story. Not the way we were. And so the project sort of goes into um, hibernation for, for a few years until Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence meet again in Hollywood because Arthur Lawrence is writing the screenplay for Anastasia, which is not the Anastasia you know, but it is sort of the inspiration for the Anastasia you know. And they're reading an article about gang wars in L.A. and Chicago between the Hispanic communities and the considerably more caucasian communities because in the 50s there was an influx of hispanic immigrants from uh, puerto rico and mexico and whatnot which caused a lot of tension in those areas and they're like that's the show and leonard bernstein's like i can i can think of the melodies right now that's how he spoke that's it's been documented and they get Jerome robbins back on board and they're really into it and they're looking originally leonard bernstein's gonna write the lyrics and he's like it's too much work besides i'm writing candide it's too much work and so then they go to Betty Compton and Adolph Green, and they're like, we're writing for Hollywood. And then they bring in Sondheim. And then they write it for about two years, I want to say. Uh, Sondheim famously did not want to do the lyrics because he wanted to be a composer. And Hammerstein said, this is your first Broadway show. You might learn something from Leonard fucking Bernstein. Uh, sorry, it's Bernstein. From Leonard fucking Bernstein and Jerome Robbins. So maybe take the job. <laughs> so he does. And A lesson in humility, I'd say. A lesson in humility. And... They, I mean, this the 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 road to this show is really goddamn troubling. Uh, because and I, I don't mean troubling in terms of like it's offensive. I mean just they kept on running into roadblocks. They kept on doing backers auditions. Nobody liked it. They thought the music was ugly. They're like, why are you ending your first act with two dead bodies on stage? Then their main producer pulled out right before they were going to start rehearsals, and they thought that the show was dead. Hal Prince, famous Hal Prince, he of the many many Tony Awards pulls in because uh he's a good friend of steven sondheim and they got on the phone and sometimes like my show is dead and hell prince is like i'm out of town with a bad show he's like when i'm finished with the bad show i'll do your show <laughs> so they do it they get eight weeks of rehearsal which then was unheard of and they go to philadelphia where the show is a huge hit then they go to dc a uh, huge hit they come to broadway and the reviews are fine we'll lukewarm. go lukewarm lukewarm they're they're more positive than sondheim and arthur lawrence like to say they like to say, oh, the reviews were mixed. They were hostile. A disaster. Yeah, they weren't. They're actually pretty positive. But, like, considering what West Side Story has become in the canon, you would think it was Mean Girls. They're like, <laughs> they're like it's pretty good. Not Mean Girls. Well, they're like, you know, it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Show runs for about two years. Uh, was very big in the, like, theater-loving crowd. Wasn't a huge mainstream hit. It became a bigger hit, actually, towards the closing. And then they sold the movie rights uh, for what they call uh bargain basement prices and the movie became what it was and we will get to that after we get to the show so we know how we got here to quote uh, to quote Lindsay ellis we know how we got here let's see what we got west side story uh west side story what what's what's it about andrew i was waiting for this question for years west side story is an adaptation of romeo and juliet never the, heard of her the montagues and the capulets become the sharks and the jets two warring gangs and two young lovers in each of the groups tony and maria mm -hmm. romeo and juliet get caught in the crossfire of this gang war and all they want to do is love each other that's all they want 
That's all they want. All they want is to fuck. <laughs> so we start with the prologue. <laughs> it's a lot of music. A lot of music. It's all music. It's all music. All music, all dance. Yeah. Uh, what I like about this, especially considering the numerous uh, ways they tried to open the show at first, mm-hmm. is that it tells you off the bat the language that's going to be primarily used in the show. Yeah. Which is dance. Dance. Dance and music. That is the main vocabulary. And it, there's no overture. Although in the movie there is. Which, like, well, again... I cannot say it enough. We'll get to. <laughs> There's no overture. It's the very famous, and the music is very kind of tense and kind of tribal. If that makes sense. Like a lot of percussion that's very um, mm-hmm. tribal and the famous snapping. And it's very kind of, um, I don't know. How would you describe the dancing in the prologue? Um, I think tense is like the perfect word to describe it. Um, And I even think you get that just listening to like the original Broadway cast recording Mm -hmm. because they also record some of the shouts and the screaming that happened during the music, which I love. Um, So you really get this sense of like the, the kind of like, what am I trying to say? Yeah, you know what? <laughs> no, yeah. You really no, you get the sense of uh imminent danger. Yeah, imminent danger. That's Which is my exactly new drag name by the way. Imminent danger. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage. Imminent danger. <laughs> As I said, they went through many incarnations of this opening. First, it was going to be a song that was going to take place, like, in the Jet Clubhouse, whatever the fuck that was, and it was going to be called My Greatest Day. And if you listen to it online, because Aurora Spider-Woman actually has audio of the song. Of it was course. It was never done on stage, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's documented in the Library of Congress, and they did a concert of it. So, mm-hmm. of course, Aurora Spider-Woman has audio of uh-huh. said concert. Mm-hmm. And the music that's in My Greatest Day, it, it, first of all, the lyrics are crazy because it starts with them the jets saying like how do you get to the moon flabbity jabba around the way and back again riff will know how to get to the moon and then they get into like my greatest day was when we went to the movies my greatest day is joining the jets the jets are awesome like it's that very you know sondheim had to start somewhere yeah but the music used is all music that's in the prologue and then some of it's in um, the Jets song and then some of it's even in Dance at the Gym. It's like, oh, the Jets are here. It's that stuff. But mm-hmm. it's very hodgepodge, very crafty, to quote Drag Race. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's music that doesn't really flow together. And I think that was probably the point was Leonard Bernstein wanted to like make it very jarring. But by then taking... Well, I think that kind of drives the point home of these two opposite groups these two very distinct groups yeah um, like musically they're they're distinguished yeah but th- it's what i mean by jarring that was interesting is in the opening number when it was going to be a song it was just the jets so there were no sharks around which is storytelling faux pas number one you need to show the the contrast mm-hmm. but the by having the music be so like clashing in a way I understand on the thematic level they, why they were trying it. And then I think they heard it and they went, oh, oh. audiences are going to be resentful because this music's not flowing together. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear that and then hear how they actually did take all those melodies and then make them flow in the prologue. Because while the music in the prologue has a lot of, has a lot of tension, it flows so mm-hmm. well. It goes from one to the other. We just sort of see the Jets and the Sharks hate each other and keep on trying to like 
claim the territories there. That's really all that happens in the prologue, right? Yeah, that's really all that happens in the prologue. They they get into a fight, and mm-hmm. then they're broken up by... Lieutenant Shrank. Uh, Lieutenant Shrank and uh, Officer Krupke. Yes, famous Officer Krupke. Famous. Famous. He will be spoken of much later. <laughs> Shrank basically... Uh, he has disdain for both gangs, but he is inherently racist. He very much prefers the Jets to the Sharks. He doesn't like the Jets. He, because his whole life... I mean, he literally says, I have to put up with them and so do you. Yes. And I think he more is annoyed for the Jets for existing because his whole like job is to keep de- uh, juvenile delinquents off the street. And the Jets just keep making it difficult for him. Mm-hmm. So it's more like... He's like, fuck you guys. Like, can you just go home? Mm-hmm. And then he also doesn't like them and has disdain for them because the Jets have, um, are, are descended from first generation, immig- uh, not first generation, but immigrants. Mm-hmm. The Jets are first generation Americans, mm-hmm. which is another interesting theme mm-hmm. in the show. And specifically European immigrants. Yes. Polish, mm-hmm. uh, and Italian. In fact, the... Um, and of course, the way we address like juvenile delinquency and poverty is just to tell them to go home. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Some things never change. Social commentary of the year. Truly. Truly. The, um, actually, if you read the script, which I'm sure you've never read the script of West Side Story. Never. No. The dialogue is obviously not the best in West Side, but the stage directions are actually quite interesting because when Arthur Lawrence is describing the Jets, he describes them as like, I can't remember the exact word. I wrote it down and now I can't find it. But like, basically, an analysis amalgamation is that the right way to say that i think so yeah amalgamation Mm -hmm. i don't know i didn't go to school for goddamn english (laughs) but a combination of what we now call american in quotation marks yeah amalgamation is amalgamation of what we call american American. in quotation Mm -hmm. marks which is to say that you know they're what is even american Mm -hmm. and whatever you know american is like is made up in so many terms, especially with these guys, especially considering the fact that their parents probably speak very ling- little English yeah. themselves. But uh, yeah, at that time especially, like the what being being an American is still. I mean, even now is is still being defined, but mm-hmm. especially then when you have these different ethnic groups, you know, claiming space in this city mm-hmm. um, that you know originally was home to indigenous peoples. Like, yes. what does being an American mean? Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't even thinking about that. No, of though, course not. No, of course not. But yeah, but that's sort of the thing is, it's it, the idea from the Jets, which is the idea of so many stupid people, is well, we were here first, and mm-hmm. we look more like right. Americans, at least in terms of what the American propaganda machine has churned out as the American look: yeah. all American, corn-fed, milk-drinking, Pleasantville bullshit. You know, you said it. I did say it. I said I said what I said, and I say this as someone who could not look more corn-fed, milk-drinking, all-American. Are you kidding? You haven't eaten a day in your life, honey. <laughs> Clavicle. <laughs> yeah, but so we basically just get the idea that the sharks are treated as less than by not just the jets, by everyone in America. They are newer. And the Jets basically blame the Sharks for everything. They talk about, you know, oh, my old man's going out of business because of them. And there's even someone who says, like, oh, my old man says your old man would have gone out of business anyway. Mm -hmm. But they just sort of throw that out. They're like, Mm -hmm. no, it's the Sharks' fault because everyone wants a common enemy. And it's easier to just have that. Yep. We then go into the Jets song, which is fun. I like it. It's a fun blast. It's a fun. She's a bop. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. Bow! <laughs> the jets are It's a good game. time. It's a, it's a fun time. And I think it does a really good job of 
it I think it really does work to make them likable. Yeah, well, they're children. Yeah, which is they're little, they're kids. Yeah, yeah, they are teenagers, and what makes them likable, or even not even likable, but watchable, because I don't love the word likable because I am, maybe I'm just having PTSD with it. I've been having a lot of people throw it my way in regards to character writing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm secretly working on a um a project that's gonna be pitched soon, and the guy who's commissioning the work wants the main character to be super likable mm-hmm. because the main character is going to be an older, wealthy white man towards the tail end of his life. And he's like, how do we make this guy likable in 2021? And I'm like, why do we have to make him likable? Mm-hmm. We just have to make him watchable. Right. And so I've been sort of fighting hard about this. But this man wants what he wants. So Yeah, I, I think what I mean by likable is I'm very endeared to the Jets in that opening number. Yeah, you're willing to watch like, them more. Exactly. They're very rough and tumble. And there's something there is something sweet about them too yeah especially like when anybody right. shows up and yeah, you right get this like bat. really eager you know young girl wanting to play rough with these boys you know why she's called anybody's right no because when asked whose kid is she they say oh, she's anybody's kid ah that's sweet and also kind of sad yeah well that's sort of <laughs> there's implications of prostitution in the with these kids families like one of the kids moms probably Lieutenant Shrink call. calls her out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and anybody's sister, older sister, apparently walks the streets. And you know, th- these are not wealthy kids. These are not classy kids. Um, you can argue some of them, some of their families are hardworking people. Oh, no. They're all hardworking people. What they do to, uh, to be hardworking varies and maybe isn't as accepted by society as other positions. But we learned in the Jet song that they... Uh, despise the sharks for uprooting their lives we also learned that there's going to be a dance that night they're going to challenge the sharks to a rumble and riff the leader wants tony who co uh founded the gang with riff but is no longer part of the gang to join them at the dance and at the rumble tony got a job and now tony's wants to be a classy respectable young man yeah which like we love to see he's trying to grow up that's growth yeah which and what (laughs) i love is that the jets resent him for it yeah so we move on. Uh, Riff convinces Tony to go to the dance tonight. Tony's always reaching for something. Yeah, something's coming, I think. I have to say, while I don't love a lot of the dialogue in West Side Story, it's mostly a means to an end. This is the scene that I hate the most. It is the most forced of the writing. And it doesn't help that the 2009 revival has two really bad actors. I'm just going to say it. I'm bad vehemently, actors. vehemently shaking my head. Yes. Bad, bad actors. The 909 revival actually has a lot of bad acting. And some of it I blame the actors and some of it I blame the direction. Because Arthur Lawrence thought that what made West Side Story good was the script. So those book scenes are dragged out for hours. There is so much space between every line. And no energy. No energy. It feels like you you get through the Jet song, which is like so fun and exciting, and then mm-hmm. you get to this first book scene with Tony and Riff, and it falls dead. It dies immediately. And I'm like, people aren't supposed to die for another hour. We'll get to... It's only supposed to be two characters that die at the end of Act 1, not 1,600 people in a theater <laughs> in the first 10 minutes. We'll get to that revival towards the end of yes. The Legacy, because I have thoughts on that revival and why that revival was the way it was. And because that's my most recent point of reference, I'm, sure. I'm really stuck on it, man. Well, as are we all. And neither one of us saw the Evo Van Hoffe revival. No. No. So, yeah, Tony's re- reaching for something. He's convinced to go to the dance, saying something's coming, which is uh, one of Sondheim's... Uh, 
favorite lyrics actually of the show and this is the only song where Sondheim contributed some music to could be who knows there's something due any day I will know right away soon as it shows it make him cannonballing down through the sky gleaming its eye bright as a rose so then we meet Maria um, a young Puerto Rican woman. Yes, with her friend Anita, who is taking the place of the nurse. Anita is the nurse in, in uh, Shakespeare's Rome. Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Anita is Maria's best friend and Bernardo's girlfriend. Bernardo is Maria's brother and the leader of the Sharks. And we come to learn in the scene that Maria and Anita are new to America. They work in a dress shop all day. Maria was brought to America by her family to marry Chino, Bernardo's best friend and second in command of the Sharks. Uh, Maria is so excited to be a young lady of America and is so excited to go to the dance. And she wears this beautiful white dress. She wants to cut just an inch lower. And mm. um, just an inch lower, give away the farm. <laughs> and we establish that Maria is young and innocent, a little cheeky. Anita is fiery and sexual. They go to the dance. It's very heated. There's mambo, which I love. Mm-hmm. And then Tony and Maria see each other from across the room. And this is one of those things that really sort of sums up what makes West Side Story work in a way that a book a true book musical could never really get across, not even a movie, mm-hmm. which is love at first sight Yeah, in such a simplistic kind of stupid way. But you buy it in West side because why do we buy it in West side? How, how do we see them fall in love? Is it through, is it through song? Is it through spoken word? No, it's through dance. Through... It's through their bodies moving through space. Mm-hmm. And I love the orchestration for the dance, the dun, 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 dun. You really do get this sense of them being in, like, that's just so lame to say, but, like, in a different world and just, like, totally entranced with each other. It's It really is, like, a ma- I think it's, like, a magical moment on stage. It, oh, absolutely. Well, so, hot take with West Side Story for me is that I think West Side Story is a beautiful musical. It is not a musical that can successfully work when you try to play it gritty and realistic Mm -hmm. it needs to exist in sort of a heightened abstract world Mm -hmm. because that's sort of how it's designed to be yeah sondheim has said that west side story is a love letter to theater and what theater can do it's not really about a realistic portrayal of racial tension Mm -hmm. and gang violence Mm -hmm. it's theatrical Mm -hmm. and that is what makes west side story fly is those moments where it just leans into the theatricality mm-hmm. of it so when dance takes over when music takes over when yeah. it's when it's trying less hard to be like gritty realism mm-hmm. and that's why i think moments like the dance of the gym work so well because west side story also kind of exists outside of itself the music isn't really a time capsule of music of that time it's an impression of music of that time and of uh latin music and all that mm-hmm. i was reading an article by this um, Puerto Rican journalist for the New York Times when the last revival came out that basically was like it's time to let West Side Story die um, and it was it's hard, it was harder to tell in the, in the article if she was like can we just stop doing the show for a minute because mm-hmm. like it's not what you all think it is Yeah. but her critique of the show was that it wasn't it was both 
too realistic and not realistic enough. Like a lot of the violence, she was like, that's too realistic in the sense that we just keep seeing it. And I'm tired of seeing, you know, women objectified in this way and thrown around as puppets for a stage play. And also the, the Latin music is not authentic Latin music. And I'm like, it's not supposed to be authentic. If it were authentic Latin music, it would date the show. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a highly theatrical world and everything's impressionistic. Mm-hmm. So that's my hot take. Wow. Boiling. I think I need to leave this recording to go to the hospital for these third-degree burns. Ha! Listen, I have no food in my stomach. (laughs) I'm drinking nothing but water. Mm. It's surprising that I can get sentences together. I'm convinced (laughs) it's going to be gobbledygook, much like a lot of the the words that Arthur Lawrence wrote for the Jets in West Side Story. Hmm. Speaking of the Jets. Frabba-jabba. So, Tony and Maria meet. Yes, they kiss. They dance. They, They dance, they kiss. They have the interaction is actually very lovely and poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not thinking of someone else. I know you are not. It's, it's, it's and it's also I think it's a brilliant adaptation of Shakespeare. Like I don't need mm-hmm. them to say hand to hand this Holy Palmer's kiss. There are ways to adapt that, and I think that West Side that's actually something that West Side Story does really well in parts of the book and also mm-hmm. in most and um, literally almost all of the music. Yeah. I think because West Side Story is written so economically, there's no time to really kind of sit and think about it all there's no time for iambic pentameter yeah no none at all and because there's no time there because there's no time for the story to sort of sit with itself there's no time for the characters to think about anything Mm -hmm. and so it just it it, i think that's just what makes it work it just flies and you have to let it fly but so they learn that they're from opposite sides of the world he is a jet she's a shark he learns her name maria and the Jets and Sharks agree to meet for a war council at Doc's Drugstore, which is where Tony works. Tony, all he can think of is he just learned Maria's name, which is Maria, and leads to the song Maria. Uh, Sondheim talks about this song and says basically, like, I was asked to write a love song. I thought, what do you write? A, how do you write a love song for a guy who knows nothing about the girl he's singing a love song about <laughs> except her name? So he's like, yeah, it's, it's about her name. And uh, he doesn't love his lyrics for it. He thinks mm-hmm. they're kind of stupid. But when he played it for Oscar Hammerstein and his wife, they cried. He's like, it was their favorite song in West Side Story, so must be good enough. I also think, again, if we're going to talk about, like, adapting works, I think it's really smart to take Juliet's speech mm-hmm. in Romeo and Juliet about the the rose. Mm-hmm. Um, what a, I think, it, what is the line? Uh, a rose by any, by any other name would smell as sweet. Exactly. And, like, making that turning that into maria for tony to sing Mm -hmm. i i just i personally love that adaptation no it's it's really smart in a lot of ways the while some of the dialogue is stale and and i think some of the as i said some of the nitty-grittiness that was quote-unquote groundbreaking at the time has not aged as well but that's sort of always the case things that are groundbreaking age poorly the actual storytelling of it all coming together is really well done and the other thing that Sondheim wrote, so as Sondheim gets older and works more and creates these really brilliant works, a lot of his works do get more sophisticated and heady, but they get less guttural mm-hmm. and less emotional. Mm-hmm. There's something about West Side Story that's so pure mm-hmm. and so raw that you that it hits you in a way that I feel like, while I love Company, Company doesn't really hit you. Mm-hmm. Uh Sweeney Todd, like, Sweeney Todd's one of those brilliant musicals that's ever existed. I don't get emotional watching Sweeney, mm-hmm. although I do know people who do. So, you know, it's subjective. Anyway, he also talks about where um, they're in rehearsals for West Side Story, and Jerome Robbins is like, so what's Tony doing here And for Maria? And Steven's like, yeah, you know, he's 
He's singing Maria. He, <laughs> he, he's in love with her. He's singing, singing her name. And he's like, and Robin's like, yeah, but what's he doing? And Sondheim's like, oh, it is, he's walking around. <laughs> he's walking around. And Robin's like, oh, he's walking around? You stage it. <laughs> he's like, I don't know how to stage this. Maria, I've just kissed a girl named Maria. So he gets to Maria's balcony or fire escape somehow. It's one of those things where, again, it doubles as both. It's a balcony yeah, and a fire escape. But again, it's New York City. It's one of those things where you think about it too long. You're like, how did he find her? But <laughs> it doesn't. It they truly live in doesn't the same matter. Neighborhood. I, I, I come back to the Heather's line. How'd you find my address? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Things are weird. But so he finds her. They have their meeting on the on the fire escape and they sing tonight. Thoughts on tonight, Andrew? Um, it's fun to listen to. It is. It's a beautiful melody. It's beautiful. Yeah, they express their love. It's very operatic. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be the song One Hand, One Heart. And, and they moved that. They moved it to later. and Which was a good move. Yes. Well, I think they just said they thought it wasn't really passionate enough. Which yeah, is fair. and also it feels a little bit out of place. Tonight feels very exultant and like, I, I think it matches with something's coming very well, which is just yeah. this sense of, you know. There's more energy to exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It fizzles, it bubbles. Tonight, tonight, it all began. I saw you and the world went away. Tonight, tonight, there's only you tonight. What you, what you say, what you say. I don't want to say there's a lot of, there's depth to Maria, but not necessarily a lot of, um, facets to her if mm-hmm. that makes sense but yeah. i think that's fair of everyone in the show the show is a melodrama mm-hmm. so everyone has to sort of be a big bold color for their role they play everybody plays a part of the tapestry no one is their own like three-dimensional being if that makes sense yep yeah agreed but it works um they finish the song they have that wonderful exchange we have to say the what does tony stand for anton teodoro anton teodoro anton teodoro ah. maria which is important because it comes back uh, yeah, I do. Although it does <laughs> the the one my only complaint, literally my only complaint of the original Broadway cast recording is because they had to fit it all into one LP. There are cuts here and there. Uh, with tonight, there's a lot of dialogue in the tonight scene, and you wouldn't under- know if you listen to the OBC. Mm-hmm. And it has one of the most jarring cuts from dialogue because <laughs> she goes, um, goes, I must go, go quickly. I'm not afraid. They are stripped with me, please. I love you. It's just <laughs> so basic. Because there's more dialogue there. It's written a lot better than uh-huh. the recording would have you believe. So I just, and I, and you can tell Larry Kurt doesn't, the original Tony doesn't know how to make that line work <laughs> with the cuts. He's like, I love you. It's so, it's fun. I enjoy it thoroughly. Thanks, Larry Kurt. Moving on. So Tony leaves and, wait, was, oh, oh, I also like in the lyrics for tonight, it's sort of, what I, it's, I like Sondheim's lyrics for it because it is, this combination he finds a middle ground between maria's broken english and tony's like fake jive that arthur lawrence has given the jets yeah. it's it, it's a nice sort of middle he constantly talks about how he was really having a hard time making the lyrics and what he calls not purple which i'm not entirely sure what that means but i think he means just like overly saccharine and sentimental mm-hmm. because bernstein comes from the opera world and mm-hmm. the classical mm-hmm. music world and when bernstein was writing his own lyrics it was like 
in a moment you find your love and your love sets you aflame and the moment and the wheat and the fields and, <laughs> and the moon and the stars and Sana was like motherfucking fucker <laughs> so he was trying to move away from that that was a that was an exact quote that was an exact quote and sometimes and they would have to kind of work together because sometimes Bernstein would write a, a melody line and Sana was like can we add some more like quarter notes or something <laughs> like you're giving me like uh are you me yeah like, <laughs> like that kind of stuff uh, so we move along. Uh, Anita comes out with the rest of the sharks, and they talk about America. This is an interesting thing. When uh, when America was written, it was supposed to be the girls and the boys of the sharks, and then it was made just the girls. Jerome Robbins very much just wanted to be the girls. And then when it got to the movie, it was both, both. the boys and the girls. Mm-hmm. And then with uh, the new revival, it's the boys and the girls. And this is something where both make sense, and I have my preference. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask you about your preference as well. Sondheim talks about with west side story he learned about theatrical sensibility and like realistic sensibility or like logic let's say uh and we'll get to more examples of that in a second but you know sondheim likes to think very logically of you know well realistically it would go like this and then this and then this and jerome robbins was of the camp of like theatrically we need it to go like this Mm -hmm. it works better theatrically this way and the audience will forgive it if it works theatrically right and he's right and so with America, he's like, yes, realistically, it would make more sense for the boys and the girls of the Sharks to sing America together because the boys hate America. The girls like America. But I, he's like, theatrically, it's more exciting for the girls to be on their own. We have so few moments where the girls mm-hmm. are on their own. Mm-hmm. Let's have them own the stage for a minute. Yeah. And there are two moments where the girls own the stage in West Side Story as it's originally written. Mm-hmm. And in the most recent Evo Van Hoffe revival, he gets cuts one re- of them. He cuts one of them yeah. and then puts the boys back on stage for the other one. So the girls have no moments. Yeah. No moments. It pisses me off. Again, I understand like the logical sense behind it, but there's a thematic undercurrent that I am like pissed about. Anywho, uh, that production's not currently playing, so <laughs> yeah. we're not going to like kick it while it's down. <laughs> but I just, it's, I, I cannot make my distaste for Eva Van Hoffe more known, so mm-hmm. I just wanted to say that right here, mm-hmm. right here, right now, baby. Yeah, we've got your number. We got your number, Evo. <laughs> oh no. Jimmy Graham goes to America. Many hellos in America. Nobody knows in America. Puerto Rico in America. It's so satisfying to listen to. It is so satisfying. And it's so fun. And the way that it's originally conceived for the stage, or I should say, the way that it finally ended up on stage is so thrilling. And again, works in such a purely theatrical way that I don't care about the logical sense behind Mm -hmm. it. That there's, oh, one girl who likes it back home and she has to be the butt of the joke the entire song. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Everything else just works so well. So dynamically well. And yes, like storytelling wise, it makes more sense for the guys to be there. In the movie, it works fine, but it doesn't fly in the same way. Yeah. And watching Debbie Allen do it, my God. Man, she just eats up the stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know Karen Olivo did the 09 revival and acted the shit out of it. And like moves well. Mm-hmm. And I, that was a very controversial casting because there were a lot of people who were big uh, West Side devotees mm-hmm. and um, traditionalists who were like, Anita needs to dance. And all the Karen Oliva defenders were like, she dances fine. And like, yes, she dances in a way that a lot of people couldn't. She moves very nicely. But then you watch a dancer dance where mm-hmm. like Debbie Allen piss all over that stage. Yes. And you're like, oh, that that's 
cheese. Yeah. Debbie Allen is like in her prime is just the most succulent cheese you've ever seen. Yes. Anyway, mm-hmm. America's over. And it's one of those songs again, like plot wise, not really helpful, but we establish that the girls and Anita specifically likes America. Yeah. There are opportunities, so to speak. Then we go to docks where the jets are waiting for the sharks. They sing cool, which, um, mm-hmm. I don't really have feelings about this song. Yeah. I weren't, I'm going to save my feelings on the song for when we get to the movie. Okay. Sharks show up. They do the war council. Tony shows up to keep it from being like an out brawl with knives and weapons. He's like, it's just going to be fist fights and have just two of you do it. And whoever beats the other one up worse wins. And so they leave. And Tony tells Doc he's in love. Doc realizes it's with a shark girl. It's very from, uh, prescient. So I'm, I'm worried enough for both of you. Cut to the next day. All this all the way, all this happens over the course of 48 hours. The whole show is 48 hours. Hey. Yeah. So we move on to the next day. Tony meets Maria at the bridal shop where Anita discovers them. I do love uh, the interactions where Tony's like, we're 12 feet in the air. And Maria says, can, please don't tell Anita. And she goes, how can I tell what goes on above, 12 feet above my head? <laughs> Anita is so Coming funny. in with the zingers. Anita is funny. She is smart. She is the best character in the show. I Yeah. I, I think I agree. Yeah. And Rita Moreno in the movie is really phenomenal mm. in it. I cannot wait to see Ariana DeBose do it in the remake. Mm. Um, she, I think she's going to Oh, yes. Slay. I frequently f- I forgot that that's coming. It is. Co- something's coming. It was supposed to come out in December, and then famously COVID hit. And they <laughs> Famously. And, and they really don't want to put it on streaming. They, want, they really want it to be in a movie theater. Yeah. So they're pushing it to 2021 December. Same with uh, Ham, uh, In the Heights. Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm... Listen, I'm I will happily it. wait to sit in a theater to watch In the Heights. Let me tell you, when that Same. preview came on, mm-hmm. the first time I saw that preview in a theater, tears. Instant tears. Love I it. will wait to see it in a movie theater. Me too. And they they filmed both those movies in my neighborhood. <sighs> or my old neighborhood. I don't live there no more. Oh, she moved on down to the... To the up. <laughs> she moved on down to the up. <laughs> to the Upper East Side. Uh, Tony Maria sing One Hand, One Heart. They do sort of like a mock wedding with the with the mannequins in the mm-hmm. bridal shop which is really cute it's one of those things where it's like oh tony and maria have a sense of humor that's nice yes because they don't make any jokes before no <laughs> i like it and they it all gets very serious and they sort of realize the heaviness of what they're pretending to do mm-hmm. and they sort of lean into it and they sing one hand one heart which was a, a melody line originally in candide and bernstein cut it from candide and put it in west side what i love about this story is originally it was one hand, one heart. And sometimes like, Lenny, can we add some like quarter notes in there? He's <laughs> like, I can't just do one hand, one heart. So it's make of our hand, one hand, make of our heart, one heart, which is clever. Yeah, it's more interesting. Very simple, makes it more interesting, but keeps it romantically simplistic. Mm-hmm. Simplistically romantic? Yeah. Which 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 is it? I like simplistically rom- Simplistically Romantically romantic? simplistic. Romantically simplistic. Yeah. Yeah. Then the Tonight court, uh, Quintet, actually. Part mm. two. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Mm. I just love... I mean, it's... To hear... Uh, it's like chaos. It is. It's structured chaos. Yeah. The Jets are gonna have the day tonight. The Jets are gonna have the way then we get the rumble riff and bernardo die how do they die <laughs> they well bernardo 
stabs Riff, mm-hmm. and then Tony shows up and stabs Bernardo. Yes, Tony is supposed to show up to stop the rumble because Maria tells him there can't be a rumble. First one, he's like, oh, I fixed it. Like, no one's going to die. It's no just going to be fists. And yes. Maria says, no, any there, fight's a bad fight. Yes, which that is the stupid thing she does because she that's where she's being not realistic enough. Mm-hmm. She doesn't understand that they need to fight. In fact, yeah. Anita says, like, they need to get rid of something. Yeah. They need to let something out. And one wonders, like, what would happen if they had the rumble? Just fist fought. Just fit, fist fought and Tony didn't show up. Yeah. And they just, like, had it out like that. No Ooh. one died. And they were able to sort of get that aggression out. Mm-hmm. Would they move on from it? We don't know. Probably not, but it probably things would have cooled for a minute. Yeah, it wouldn't that. have escalated to, you know, double homicide. Exactly. Triple homicide, really. When you think about it in the course of the next 12 hours. Okay, yes. Yes. Spoiler alert. There's a third, <laughs> there's a third dead <laughs> body. you didn't know already. For those of you who know Batboy and Heather's like the back of your hand but don't know West Side Story, <laughs> there's a third dead body ouch, in there. Ouch. Ouch. Lake 12-year-old Andrew. Listen, I did Bat Boy. I love Bat Boy. I choked on my fang doing Ooh, Bat love Boy. Love me, Bat Boy. So yes, Tony shows up to the Rumble. Things escalate. He's trying to stop it. Bernardo brings out a knife, then Riff brings out a knife. Bernardo stabs Riff, and you can tell like Bernardo doesn't even mean to. It's one of those things where like he does it, and then sort of realizes the weight of mm-hmm. what he's done. That's where you kind of realize that they're all children. Yeah, where like something no one ever expected to get like that. It's like you know you see it in the movies and in the comic books, and you think about it. And it actually happens. And mm-hmm. then Tony kills Bernardo and everybody flees because the cops come. Tony shouts, Maria. Curtain comes down on two dead bodies. And that is what made no backers want Ooh. to invest in the show in 1956. I mean, what a bummer. What a bummer. 57, actually, because the show opened in 57. But still, it doesn't matter. Anyway, then act two begins. Bum, 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 ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's I Feel Pretty, one of the most controversial songs in this show. <laughs> I feel pretty. So pretty, I feel pretty and witty and bright, and I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. I feel charming. What are your thoughts on I Feel Pretty? I love it. I do too. It's the it's the kind of song you sing to yourself in the mirror when you're home alone. Yeah. Well, so do you know why it's controversial? I don't know why it's controversial. So do you know why Sondheim doesn't like this song? Well, it has something to do with the lyrics. Yes. I mean, obviously, but... Yes. He was really frustrated writing for West Side Story because it's, you know, make of our hand, one hand, and, you know, the Jets are in gear. And he's like, I want to show that I'm a good lyricist because he's writing for the style of the show. He's writing for the characters. And he gets to I Feel Pretty. He's like, oh, here we go. I can show internal rhymes. I can show play on words. And he's so proud of it. And then they do a run through for like some artist friends and Sheldon Harnick, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof Mm -hmm. and Apple Tree. Uh, comes up to him afterwards he's like there's that one song i feel pretty and sondheim immediately thought oh fuck (gasps) in trying to show off how clever i am i didn't think like this girl would never sing a lyric like this she's new to america she doesn't have the vocabulary or the education to like think of these puns Mm -hmm. um which i get that's where we get into the logical sense and then a lot of people go, well, the song doesn't add anything. It's not important to Wait, the story. Wait, so Harnick says this to Sondheim. So Harnick doesn't say that. Harnick, oh, all Harnick says is. All Harnick Sondheim says starts is, doubting it. Yes. I all see. Harnick says is, there's that one lyric, yeah. Steve. And basically, like, a mutual understanding of, like, you know why I'm thinking this. Mm-hmm. And Sondheim has now come to that conclusion. And uh, Arthur Lawrence thinks the same way. Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins are like, what are you talking about? The song's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And necessary. On a theatrical sense, it's necessary. It brings the audience back in. It gives the audience a second to breathe before we get back into everything, before we really put our foot to the pedal. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people don't like it. They think the song's superfluous and also agree with Sondheim. Maria would never sing lyrics like that. 
I like it because of the theatrical sense of it brings the audience back in. It's a beautiful song. And it's the, and this is something I didn't even think about until I watched an interview with the woman who was going to be directing the Aida revival that mm-hmm. now isn't happening. She was on Seth Rudetsky's web thing talking about why she was so angry with the last West Side revival for cutting it. She was mm-hmm. like, do you know how rare it is for a woman of color to sing on a stage how beautiful she is and confident mm-hmm. she feels? Yeah. She's like, that is so rare. Mm-hmm. And Eva Van Hoffe took that away. Yeah. Um, on a thematic level, it's just so important. But it was very important to Eva Van Hoffe to be like, it's about a race against time. Time, time, time. Put up the clock. It's time. <laughs> I feel pretty doesn't have any to do with time. And also, women are singing it, so fuck it. Well, this is actual audio of Eva Van Hoffe, just so everybody knows. Actual audio. That was Eva Van Hoffe sitting down with Gloria Steinem and s- explaining why he was cutting <laughs> I Feel Pretty and why he was putting the Shark Boys in America with the Shark Girls. Exclusive. Exclusive, Exclusive to Broadway Breakdown. Yes. Oh, my God. It's been leaked. Guys, here you go. <laughs> but... That is sort of where I'm at. Where like I love the song for what it does, and I and don't... I think as you mentioned before, it's an, another opportunity to just see the women in general, like yeah. the girls together, away from the other shit. Mm-hmm. They need it. There's uh, there aren't that many times where the women get to own the stage, and especially on the stage in a really buoyant way. In mm-hmm. a show that's so dark that mm-hmm. deals with such dark themes, it's important that the writers remember which characters they like and the care and the writers clearly like maria and anita mm-hmm. so allowing them those moments to own the stage on their own in a time where women of color there were no shows where women of color were able to own the stage so for them to do that was really that's for me is like the most groundbreaking and the most and the biggest legacy that the show has mm-hmm. so it, it bothers me when sondheim gets all caught up in his lyric writing i'm like don't you understand like the importance that you wrote that's bigger than you yeah you know that's that and that's something we'll get to with future episodes of Sondheim and sort of where he comes at songs that way. Because uh, sometimes it's like, yes, it's true. But what's also true is that this song is bigger than you are. So understand that. What it means to so many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song ends. Chino comes <laughs> in, tells Maria, he killed your brother, Tony. Maria, fine. Tony shows up. Maria goes, killer, killer, killer. And killer, killer. Tony tells Maria what happened. Maria doesn't want him to go to the police. Stay with me. They sing somewhere. They go into the Somewhere Dream Ballet. The 09 revival famously cuts the second half of the ballet, which undermines the whole point of the <laughs> ballet. If you want to see the ballet in full, you can watch it on Aurora Spider-Woman's channel. Um, and then they... Also, not sure how I feel about the kid singer for that. Oh, the little boy soprano singing yeah. it? I hate it. I hate it so much. I like it being a disembodied voice. Which is what it originally is. It's mm-hmm. originally someone in the pit singing it while mm-hmm. people dance. Feels very heavy-handed. Yes. Well, the song already is heavy-handed, but mm-hmm. what makes it work is when you add the night. So the whole point of the somewhere ballet. Sorry, we're in trying to like speed <laughs> through the plot. I'm like I am shortchanging the importance of this song in the ballet. Sorry about it. Uh, Maria sing. Maria and Tony sing about like you know finding a place. There's a place for us somewhere, a yes. place for us, mm-hmm. and they dream of this somewhere that's green, somewhere that's green, part of your world, this this utopia, yeah, where everyone gets along. And in the ballet, everyone's in white or like pastel versions of what they wear, and it's very you know Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. Everyone holds hands. It's very pleasant. very tender. Yes, and you know you could argue it's a little overly sweet, but it's kind of meant to be. Because then this disembodied voice starts to sing, there's a place for us. And Sondheim doesn't like his lyric for this one either because the like word that gets the most importance is uh. He calls it the uh song. There's a place for us. A time and place for us. But I don't know. I think it works. I never noticed it till he said it. So I'm, I'm not even noticing it now. It's bigger than he is. <laughs> 
and Arthur Lawrence had a little boy soprano do it in the 09 revival, which like, I don't know if it was supposed to be an imagination of like Tony and Maria's child or an embodiment of human innocence. All I know yeah. is that I see it and I roll my eyes. Yeah. I'm like, this isn't Annie. No, and because he is a redhead. Because <laughs> he's a little redheaded bitch. But when it's also like when you make something so literal, it be, that's when it becomes laughable. Yeah. You know, and something with West Side, the more realistic and more, as I said, the more realistic and the more literal you make it, the more laughable the show is. You have to lean into the theatricality of it all. Mm-hmm. And the, if you're going to have a dream ballet, have a dream ballet. Have it be a fucking dream, bitch. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking dream, bitch. <laughs> that is that is my interpretation of West Said. Yes. Oh, but the nightmare. Boy. The nightmare <laughs> is that then Riff and Bernardo come back in, and in the stage directions, the way it's described is like, the dream ballet takes place in sort of this abstract nowhere land mm-hmm. where nothing is real, and then as it continues, real sets kind of come back in. The fire escapes in the building, the real world kind of comes crashing back in, and that's when we see Bernardo and Riff kill each other again, mm-hmm. and Maria and Tony go back into the real world understanding like we want this it can never be and it scares them which is, leads mm-hmm. them to having sex because it's like live in the now let's we're here now let's yeah. go for it without the nightmare the, the ballet not only does them having sex make no sense but the dream ballet then becomes the very thing that like the creators didn't want to do which is make it a gap ad mm-hmm. they didn't want that <laughs> they have sex the jets uh sing g officer Krupke, which is just them being like the system doesn't know what to do with us so they turn us into what they think we are Mm -hmm. which is fair um this is another song where the melody came from candide and they rewrote the lyrics to be for the jets they were having a lot of trouble finding a song here because they were like we want to have like a comedic number to break the tension for a second and then move on and they wrote a song for anybody's and and i guess it does that it does do that but there's also an anger to it which i like because it is it is comedic in a way but like you listen to those horns enough, bum, bum, bum. Mm. it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I feel pretty. It's no. not that. It's it. There, there is an anger to it. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all our junkies, our fathers all our drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. Uh, anybody informs them that Chino's got a gun and he's looking for Tony. And they're like, well, we gotta find Tony. Let's go to Doc's. Then we go back to the apartment. Marie and Tony have fucked. <laughs> finally, after 24 hours, they finally <laughs> do it. Girl, that's a Saturday night for me. Remember when waiting 24 hours to fuck was considered <laughs> going through the desert in Lawrence of Arabia? Ooh. Now I'm like, in this economy? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, it's been three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Tony tells Maria that he, that uh, she's going to meet him at Doc's drugstore and he's going to get money from Doc. They're going to leave. They're going to flee the city and find a place upstate. And Maria sends Anita. Well. Who walks in on them. Yeah, so Anita has gotten news that Bernardo is dead mm-hmm. and goes to see Maria realizes that Tony has just spent the evening with Maria mm-hmm. or, you know, the last 30 minutes to three hours, depending on how good Tony is, how long he can last three to 30 minutes. Yes. <laughs> he is. He is 18 after all. <laughs> and you know, time is rushing out. <laughs> and they, Anita sings a boy like that, which is all very angry. And mm. Maria sings, I have a love. Mm-hmm. It's a, 
it, it's a good combo. This like is it. my favorite moment of the show. A boy like that will bring you sorrow. You'll meet another boy tomorrow. One of your own kind, stick to your own kind. A boy who kills cannot love. A boy who kills has no heart. And he's the boy who gets your love and gets your heart. Very smart, very, very smart. I think Anita really neatly sums up, like, the entire conflict of the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And... One, I and I also just love the contrasting vocalisms that the characters use. Like, mm-hmm. I love that Anita is really gritty, semi-belter. Alto, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that Maria is this, like, flighty soprano. And I love just those two vocalisms together. Um, and it is the moment in the show that really gets me thinking about, like, how important the casting of the show can be because mm-hmm. i think something you know we talk about race a lot i think it's race and west side story gets talked about a lot and like whether like hispanic people should be playing puerto ricans because you know not all hispanic people are puerto rican right um and you know whether like there's a lot of talk about like brown face in the show and whitewashing these characters but i think something that doesn't really get talked often about is ta- get talked about what am I trying to say? Something that doesn't get talked about often is like colorism. Mm-hmm. And um, generally Anita is usually played by like a darker woman of mm-hmm. Hispanic descent. Mm-hmm. And Anita is either or not. What did I say? You said, I think you said Anita. Let me start this over. <laughs> Anita is usually played by a woman of uh, darker skin color. Mm-hmm. And Maria is always played by a woman of with very fair skin, and it's the this this song in the show just really makes me think of the ways that like um, women with darker skin tones are treated versus women with fairer skin tones, mm-hmm. and I think that's you know played out in just who the characters are. Anita's supposed to be sexy and fiery and and kind of brash. Mm-hmm. But is that because she has darker skin? Um, and then Ania, and, and then Maria is this ingenue, and she's very flighty and a little bit naive. And she is, you know, strong-headed. Like, she does – she's not stupid, as you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is usually fairer-skinned. Um, and so all of that I think about when this song happens, but also the song itself is just so no. good to listen to. It's – Colorism with West Side Story is an interesting topic because you do it's something that I think about with a lot of shows now when people talk about representation with casting. I talked about this once on the podcast. I don't know if I still kept it. But, uh, I know one episode where I had to cut it just because it was going long. But there is another discussion to be had of like what people mean when they say um, – there needs to be more this or more that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you listen to Bob the Drag Queen and Monet Exchange's sibling yeah. rivalry. Yeah, mm-hmm. they talk about transracial uh, translationism on the most recent episode. Yes. And yes, and sort of about is tra- they go like is transracialism a thing? If we say transgenderism is a thing, obviously we have to say transracialism is right. a thing. And Bob essentially said, "I just want to know when people say, you know, I identify as black when they present as white." What do you mean by black? Yeah, what are you identifying with? Because it's not just the culture that you like. It's a heritage. It's a, it's a legacy. It's, it's, it's many, many things. Mm-hmm. 
And so I had someone on and Evita was brought up and someone was like, it, it always needs to be a Hispanic actress and all this stuff. And I said, okay, but wh what do you mean when you say that? Because when people say, oh, a Hispanic actress needs to play Ava Peron because Ava Peron is from Argentina, I go, okay, Ava Peron was Caucasian. Mm -hmm. Argentina it was famously a very Caucasian country because many of the citizens descended from Europe. Mm -hmm. Ava, in fact, comes from French descent. And that's actually a theme of the show of the fact of, you know, the English have a very big presence in Argentina for a long time up until the Peron uh, administration. So Ava is actually Caucasian. What you're telling me is you want an actress who looks more to you Hispanic, which is itself another conversation to have mm -hmm. and another problem to discuss. Mm -hmm. I I am all for representation and job opportunities. I understand that you know there are so few roles where a Hispanic actress can play and not have it be a thing. Like like I that's not my issue. I don't care about that. Mm -hmm. Please let it happen. But my issue is when people use those words in a way where I'm like, you're now telling me that so-and-so doesn't look enough like this for you. Yeah, they don't look the right color, essentially. Yeah. And I think that's where, as I think that's really where, like, the arguments with the Vita fall short for me. Mm -hmm. Is it's like, well, if you look at photos of Ava Perone, mm -hmm. that's a white woman. Yeah. I mean, she, is, I, she was she's, a white woman. She, that's a white woman. Yeah. Like, so you, you, it, you know, it's not enough for you to tell me you want, like, an Argentinian woman to play her because it's like, well, you know, it, then we get into issues of skin color mm -hmm. and like, um, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, if she can belt the shit out of a new Argentina, I don't care I'll who listen plays to her. it. Yeah. Yeah. Hispanic, Asian, black, like, I don't care who plays Ava Perón. Also, like, Evita itself is not the most historically accurate, nor is it like the most respectful of Argentinian history. Mm -hmm. So, truly, the most, like, color conscious diverse casting of all time give me everybody and i mean and to bring it back to west side story i also don't think that you know well, the, the puerto ricans in west side story are the you know for uh, the record i was gonna bring it back to west side story <laughs> and andrew beat me to it yes but the reason i say that with evita is i was reading an article with uh uh i don't i'm gonna butcher her name it's uh jose de guzman who played, Josie de Guzman, who Josie played Guzman. the... She was in the she, 80s. In the 80s. 80s revival, yeah. Revival as Maria. And she is a Puerto She's Rican. She's Puerto Rican, She's yeah. Puerto Rican, yes. And was, I believe, the first Puerto Rican actress to play the role. Mm -hmm. And she is fair-skinned with actually very brown hair. Mm -hmm. And in the article, she discussed how Jerome Robbins made her dye her hair black so she could present more to an audience as Puerto, Puerto Rican. Rican or what they perceive Puerto yeah. Rican to and be. And I think that's the problem with basically any Broadway show Mm -hmm. ever written is like these shows are written by white men conceived mm -hmm. by white men um produced by white men and mm -hmm. their ideas of what people of other cultures look like are not accurate representations of what right. those cultures actually look like and we often get caught in this trap of um you know thinking that the audience is dumber than they are mm -hmm. and thinking that oh this actress needs to have black hair because if she doesn't have black hair they're not going to know that she's puerto rican to be fair many audiences are quite dumb <laughs> okay but we also kind of have created those dumb audiences yeah. by treating them dumb for so long right. and so often uh so a boy like that. A boy like that. Wonderful. <laughs> but so we, we say all that. That yes. was what a one. That was a tangent that I liked. <laughs> I liked that. So uh, Lieutenant Shrek, the 
cock blocks of all cock You just called him Lieutenant Shrek. Oh, Shrank. <laughs> Lieutenant, he's Shrek. Yeah. He's Shrek without the green paint. Yes. Lieutenant Shrank. Actually, speaking of Shrek, Brian Darcy James is playing Krupke in the remake. Hello. Hello and hey, goodbye. Six degrees I've, of separation. I've just, I've employed you. You can go back to school. <laughs> so, Shrank comes in and he's like, I want to talk to you, Maria. And she's like, Anita, go to the drugstore and get me the special medicine I need, meaning tell Tony I'm going to be late. And Anita goes to the drugstore where the jets are and they won't let Anita pass. She keeps saying, I have a message for Tony. They I know don't, he's here. I know he's here. I don't believe him. And again, showing her intelligence and how keen she is, they first say like, oh, Doc went to the bank thinking she's dumb enough to leave that. She goes, the banks are closed tonight. Where is Doc? It's like, won't buy him. She yeah. keeps, and she's brave. She like, uh, listen, braver women than she would have fled as soon as like they blocked off the door, but she keeps going. And then there is an attempted rape. And I have two thoughts about this. One is that they needed something to happen. Like this is the, the killings are one thing. This is really the breaking point in the show Mm -hmm. where like, it just goes too far in a way that, it makes sense for Anita to then lie and say that Maria is dead. Tell Tony Maria is dead. I'm through with you all and walks away. I appreciate that they don't actually go through with the rape. Not that the jets couldn't bring themselves to do it. The jets absolutely could bring themselves to do it. But I think that the creative team loved Anita too much to go through that to that final point. To, they Because they were like, we need this to happen for storytelling purposes and to for shock value. We can't actually have the jets go through with it because we can't go that way to anita we can't mm-hmm. we can't put that that much trauma on her this is already trauma traumatic enough to mm-hmm. go the extra distance that would just be cruel yeah. and i think they she i do think she is the uh their favorite character in the show mm-hmm. so i appreciate that when i rewatched and i uh, rewatched the movie in the show and read the script i was like i do appreciate that moment um because i think more uh unfeeling creatives might have gone further yeah and i appreciate that they didn't it was also 1957 i don't know if they could have done that (laughs) but you know you wonder you wonder if it was 30 years later if they would have yeah yeah i don't um i definitely i think that moment for me watching like the 2009 revival was probably the moment that like i had the the most visceral reaction Mm -hmm. one because i you know rape is is terrible and traumatic mm-hmm. um and it was like the one moment into in the 2009 revival where i like felt anything essentially um well, and i think Kat a lot of it to, is i think actress, yeah so. a lot of it has to do with anita mm-hmm. um and you know regardless of whether or not the creative team liked anita or not i'm glad that it just didn't happen yeah well period i think the fact that we like anita as much as we do is testament to how much that they like her and she's also the character also sorry i'm eating a little something <laughs> andrew and i got a snack and i won't tell you when it happened in the podcast but it happened <laughs> you can listen for yourself anyway um the magic of podcasts the magic of podcast i got me a little snack so the other thing with anita is that she starts the show at such a high so in command of herself and her sexuality and her presence mm-hmm. So to see her broken like that is really devastating. And mm-hmm. that for me is like, yeah, more so than with Maria's loss of innocence, seeing yeah. Maria, uh, seeing Anita just devastated like that. It really 
kills me. And in the 09 revival, it still works because Anita's our favorite character. And also because Karen Olivo is an actress. Yeah. And mops the floor with everyone in that cast on the acting front. <laughs> Whatever you think of her dancing, she acts the shit out of that yep. role. Um, so Doc screams at the Jets. Y'all are trash. <laughs> mm, just as I suspected. Trash. They kick. They get kicked out. Doc tells Tony Marie is dead. Tony runs around New York City screaming for Chino to kill him. He sees Maria. They run to each other and Chino shoots him. Tony dies. Maria grabs the gun. How many bullets are left in this gun? Enough for you and you. How many Chino? How many Chino? How do you fire this gun, Chino? By pulling this trigger? By pulling this little trigger? We all killed him and my brother and Riff. And she is covetous of Tony's body because of the time that they were robbed of. Mm Mm-hmm. Because of everyone around them that wouldn't let them. And Lieutenant Shrank and Krupke are there. And the jar- uh, sharks, the sharks, <laughs> the the jets and the sharks all see. And Maria says the final spoken line, Teodoro and Tan. Teodoro and And this is how it is in the stage directions and in most revivals and most productions. Not the 09 one. What usually happens is the jets go... And pick up Tony's body, but it's too heavy, and they almost drop him. And two sharks instinctively go and grab what drops. Oh, I just got chills. Right, <laughs> right here, right now. Oh, and it's a moment where they look at each other. I'm getting chills now. Think about it. Yeah. And they lift him and carry him out. And Maria eventually has a shawl on her head, and she's sobbing. But then she looks up, resigned, stands up, and follows them off. And that's the end of the show. Ugh. And it's this middle ground of it's not perfect yet. There, but this is a step. It's the equivalent of Alyssa Green's mother in the prom saying, "We'll talk tonight." Like it's a step, mm-hmm. and you're seeing that the foundation is now being laid. It took all of this to get where we are, which, as we can you know see with the world today, like so it's usually has a lot of times it shouldn't have to, but we see it time and again throughout all of history. Things have to get to a breaking point. Mm-hmm. We test the boundaries often with with the world and with society, and once we break it. That's when we come back and, like, learn to build a new foundation. Mm-hmm. And that's how West Side Story usually ends. You know, the 09 revival, everyone was just standing there while Maria cries. Oh, and we're like, God. the fuck is this? I mean, that's still devastating to me. <laughs> yeah, but it also changes the meaning of the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, this this podcast, while doing this today, this was, like, the most you've ever experienced West Side Story. Yeah, I don't think I've ever... I mean, I've listened to the, to the score, to the original Broadway recording twice through. Mm-hmm. I watched the Onan Revival. I watched um, the uh, Jerome Robbins. Um, what was the, it? The Jerome Robbins on the, Broadway? Yeah. Or Jerome, dan- Jerome Robbins Broadway. Broadway. The Dance of the Gym, yes. Um, the Dance of the Gym. And then I also watched clips of the, you know, the 1980 revival. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, like, truly the most west side story content i've ever consumed you're welcome yeah i mean i I loved it yeah yeah well okay so thoughts on on the show with all this and with with all of all of these things taking up your brain floor is yours bitch i don't know that anything i i think that the show is really beautiful um i actually was surprised at how quickly it does move Mm -hmm. um I do think, as I've said, I, I said this earlier, I think it's like a brilliant adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the choices that Sondheim made lyrically um, are just are, are very clever, but in, in not not in like an annoying kind of wink wink kind of way. But I, I think that it does pay tribute to to Shakespeare and just to that kind of language in general. 
um the show is fun to watch the music is fun to listen to um it's not one of my favorites Mm -hmm. um and a big part of that is because it i don't have a way into the show um because there is no role for me (laughs) this is a capital d dance show yes it is. and i am not a hashtag dancer and i don't mean that to say that like i can't dance at all like i am a great mover but you know when i watch you know performances of this online and you know when i took a dance class in in grad school and we learned some of the choreography it was like oh this requires like not just technical training but i think it requires and that's part of the reason that you know the show was they they extended the rehearsal process for Mm -hmm. the show but like this kind of dance requires a lot of intuition Mm -hmm. requires a lot of intuitive movement and like you just have to know how to use your body in space like that and that's not something i think i can do um and so outside of maybe chino (laughs) i just don't think that there's like a (laughs) play there isn't always a place for us (laughs) um there is a time but not always but not always a place um but I think that the show is beautiful, and I, I don't think that there is any denying its place in the canon. Mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily that I love the word canon and all of the things that it implies for musical theater, but um, I, 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 think I don't the think the word you... canon got spoiled with like Star Wars fans and Lord of the Rings fans. It's not canon. So when I say canon, I mean like in terms of the legacy and the lineup. Yeah. But I think some people think of, you know. No, no, I definitely don't yeah. think of. Of, of of Star Wars. Wars. No, no, no. I definitely understood what you meant by canon. I did go to school. <laughs> I know, I know. But I'm saying, like, I, I, I understand why. I think that the idea work. of a canon is problematic in general because mm-hmm. oftentimes the canon, uh, like, the people who decide what a canon is mm-hmm. for whether it's literature or you know musical theater, aren't. It's like, why do these people have the authority? Why were these decisions made? Oftentimes there are works in a canon that are like, well. This was cool for the time, but, like, we're also neglecting all of these other works, oftentimes, that were, you know, being created in other countries that weren't Mm -hmm. America, um, that are also among, that also, you know, reflect these same themes and ideas and practices, Mm -hmm. but those aren't included in the canon because they weren't written by a specific set of people. Right. That's where my issue with the canon comes in. Well, to and be the musical fair. theater canon is also hard because musical theater as American musical theater is like so specific to this country and there mm-hmm. is a clear like inception and timeline. So the canon is more there's musical American musical theater is still so young. Yes. So, you know, we're not looking back at like novels that were written 200 years ago and including those as part of the canon you know um so i think the point i'm getting at is that there's no denying that like west side story does have a legacy yes and that people love it and that's why it keeps getting revived over and over and over again and remade and remade so i agree so i agree with you musical theater is a young form and that is part I think that is also partly why it has been so uh what's we're looking for? Um uh overtaken by America because it is it is an American art form. It is where this is where it was created. And I would argue America does musical theater best of any mm-hmm. country because of that. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that other countries haven't done it well. And also, you know, I don't think I think other countries have their own versions of art musical art mm-hmm. that they prefer and 
you know, it's, it's not like opera, which has been around for hundreds of years. So, of course, there are various countries that have done it and, right. and whatnot. Musicals are a little different. And maybe in 50 years, what we consider, you know, the echelon of musicals will change. Mm-hmm. I I agree with you. There are weirdly some people that are like the gatekeepers of what is considered good. I think everything is subjective. What you want to look at objectively is what has lasted mm-hmm. and, and why. Mm-hmm. And West Side Story has lasted. And I think part of that is the stuff that has always worked about it, which is the music and the and the dance mm-hmm. and the way it all just sort of comes together. Yeah. It is one of the best examples of why musical theater is effective because when you take any of the pieces apart, it kind of falls flat. Like I don't need to see a symphonic suite. I don't need to hear a symphonic suite of West Side Story music. I don't need to see a pure ballet of West Side Story, nor do I want to see a play of just the text of West Side Story. Mm-hmm. I, it's all, it all needs to go together. There are mm-hmm. some musicals where it's like, you know, you take things away and they can, they maybe don't work as well, but they can still work very strongly. I think West Side Story is one of those things. Or where, sometimes work better yeah. outside of the work. The, we will be getting to that with some Sondheim shows where <laughs> some of the scores are actually better away from the show. Mm-hmm. But West Side Story is one of those things where it's just like, you know, the music's beautiful on its own. You listen to the cast recording, but in context with everything, yeah. with the dance in the theater, it's a whole other level. Yeah. It's emotional. It's chemical. Um, yeah, the legacy of West Side Story is interesting because Leonard Bernstein said that West Side Story was always meant to be a stepping stone. It was never meant to be like, a, this is always going to be the thing. I, they they created a thinking like, how far can we push musical theater? Surely once we've done this, others will take the torch and go further. And that never really happened. Mm. Basically, they did it. And the 60s was a weird decade for Broadway where the country was going through a whole like overturn and the Vietnam War was starting to come in and Nixon became president. But like when you look at Broadway, we have like Man of La Mancha, Hello Dolly, Funny Girl, She Loves Me, wonderful shows. And She Loves Me is one of those perfect musicals that's ever written. But of that decade, really only Hair and Cabaret try something really new. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's like 10 years after West Side Story. Mm -hmm. And then the 70s, it's mostly just Sondheim and Hal Prince continuing that. No one else is really trying. Uh, Some some will take the as classic form of musical theater as they can and like do slight things. But no one's taking like these bold steps like Rodgers and Hammerstein were and then uh, Sondheim was. So I think when a lot of people complain about West Side Story being dated or not being fairly representative, I think the argument is always... This was never meant to be the one. Mm-hmm. This was meant... They wrote this thinking there was going to be plenty. Right. It's just that no one else was stepping up to the plate for so long. And so because there are so few shows that cover the same ground, mm-hmm. West Side Story, I think, gets unfairly maligned in this respect. It's 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 like today, when either, whenever there's a new work about gays and all the gays are like, well, this doesn't represent my story. And it's like, no gay story in a movie is ever going to represent all the stories. We need many. Mm-hmm. Let there be many. Yeah. You know? That's where I'm at. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry, I was just looking at some review quotes. Most of them are actually pretty good. Uh, the one I love is, Brooks Atkinson in the New York Times writes, although the material is horrifying. Look at the, the material. Look at the material. The workmanship is admirable. Uh, but he does say it's profoundly moving and candescent. 
John McClane, not John McCain, but John McClane says the most. Not ex- to be confused. Not to be confused. He says it's the most exciting thing I have come across that has come to town since My Fair Lady. Because My Fair Lady and West Side Story are basically sisters. Wow. Right? Yeah. Right. In fact, they take place simultaneously. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in the on, same on the same day. Same universe. Same same forty eight hours. Mm-hmm. Same universe. Yep. They're both canon. Yeah. It's canon. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, speaking of legacy. I want to put a decent chunk on the movie. I've also like, which I haven't seen in a very long time. Okay. But I remember parts of it. Yeah. Because the movie is iconic. The movie is iconic. So the reason I bring up the movie, and this is really one of the only, this is one of the only podcast episodes where I'll be doing this. The movie is the reason why West Side Story has a life. That is just fact because the show was successful enough on Broadway. It ran for about two years, give or take. And the movie rights were sold at, like, as I said, bargain basement prices. No one really wanted it. The only reason why you, it was purchased in the first place was because Marlon Brando, who was a huge movie star, expressed interest in playing Tony. Hmm. And they're like, Marlon Brando wants to do this? Buy it. Then it was deemed he was too old. His girlfriend, Rita Moreno, got Anita. Natalie Wood got uh, Maria. Uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. So the movie was this, like, phenomenon. Highest grossing movie of the year. 10 Oscars and turned the show kind of overnight from like a cult hit that theater lovers knew to everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows it. All of a sudden like you a saw... pop sensation. Exactly. One of... Fuck you. That was a... <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> but so... Yeah, like these songs. Sondheim always says, like, oh, these songs that for so long people said were unhummable, all of a sudden everyone's humming them. Yeah, hello. Yeah, which is crazy. But so when we look back at the Maybe movie. Maybe some of the, like, symphonic suites are unhummable, but. <laughs> I mean, who's really humming the. Um, <laughs> we are, apparently. We are. But I mean, America's a bop, always will be a bop. The music is just so gorgeous and it's it's so otherworldly in a way because it's it's impressionistic of the time. It's mm-hmm. not dated from its time. But so when I rewatch it, I and because of the remake that's coming out and everyone's like, that's kind of sacrilege. The movie's considered one of the best movies ever made. And then some people go, oh, it actually doesn't work as well. And I know the creatives of West Side Story don't like the movie because of a lot of the switches that they do and the way that it's filmed. They don't like that it's filmed on a real New York City street half the time and a lot of the sharks are actually in brown face, including Natalie Wood, famously. 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 And yes, Officer Krupke and Cool are switched in the in the movie. At, uh, I Feel Pretty actually comes a lot earlier. It comes before One Hand, One Heart, which I appreciate. I think it works really well there. And there was one other thing that was switched. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But... Well, I mean, in the context of some of those changes, too, like, Cool doesn't take place at docks anymore, does no, it? No, it takes place in a garage. Yeah. So the way that the movie is, a lot of the songs being switched, I understand, just from a storytelling perspective, film is a different medium, and what makes something flow on stage won't always flow on film, because West Side Story was written specifically for stage. Mm -hmm. So like having I Feel Pretty come right after the rumble on film would be kind of weird. The complaint that they always have, that the the creatives always have with Officer Krupke being made earlier is that it goes from being an angry comedy song to like a cute comedy song, and oh, Mm -hmm. now these are just gee whiz kids. I'm like... I get that. I still think the anger is a little bit there. I think what it does is it makes Cool better. Mm. Because in the first act, Cool is just sort of, you know, 
stay hip daddy like don't show your hand it's fine whereas in the second half of the movie the stakes aren't as high in the show at that point because Mm -hmm. all they're doing is getting ready for the war council yes but when they move it later in the movie basically i would literally getting ready for war yes i would argue that changing officer krupke to earlier in the movie doesn't harm officer krupke the way that it's performed in the movie does they perform it like a comedy routine Mm -hmm. you can still make that song an angry song and have it come earlier yeah moving cool to the second half does add those stakes and that tension you see because they as you said they are ready for war and they are it's life or death Mm -hmm. and there's a sweat to the way that they perform it that's just electrifying the way Mm -hmm. it's shot it's gorgeous the movie, I will say, I understand why you fell asleep the first time you watched it. <laughs> because the movie, for some reason, takes its sweet time getting going. They add an overture for some reason, then go into these overhead shots of New York City that go on for like three minutes. And then goes into the prologue, which even then, they stretch out even mm-hmm. longer. So it becomes even more like, sharks do this, and then the jets run after them. The jets do this, and the sharks run like for too long. Yeah. Honey, too long. Mm-hmm. The show is economical. The movie's like, stretch it out. Yeah. The movie, for me, doesn't really get going until, um, I would say, the Tonight Quintet, really. Mm -hmm. Until then, it's a little... They go for too much realism. They shoot in city streets, and then they shoot on sound stages. When When the movie works its best is when it embraces the theatricality of the show. Like, when they do the rumble under the highway, it's these big, bold reds on the screen, uh for like painting of the walls maria's bedroom has these stained glass doors so when she's begging to um the uh, virgin mary to not be true like this harsh light is like flashing all over natalie Mm -hmm. face it's gorgeous and they and then they delve into the melodrama and it's shot in a much less uh, realistic way and the ending of the movie like tony's in this big pool of light and darkness it's these like paintings almost Mm -hmm. that's when the movie gets me uh so i'm actually kind of hoping that the remake does well it sounds like they're kind of trying to embrace the realism of the story which i'm like i don't think that's gonna work as well but we'll see i'm curious i'm sure maybe you've talked about this on the pod before what haven't just, i talked about uh, just like this trend towards like realism right and specifically like gritty realism and you know what now that i say it this isn't a new conversation i think that there have been works I don't know what you're talking about. Everything I say is brand new and everyone (laughs) is taken aback by it all. I I just, I'm always curious to know why we, I, I, it makes me feel like some, I, I still think that people don't take musical theater seriously and the only way that they can get a wide audience to, Mm -hmm. to see it and to consume it specifically for the sake of like capitalism Mm -hmm. is to trend towards realism because otherwise people don't get it. And I think that's one of the things that's made uh, for in my life, like one of the things that's made theater inaccessible for people, Mm -hmm. whether they're my friends or my family is that like people don't understand how things are heightened on stage First of all, so many musicals don't translate well to film because, again, it's very different mediums. Mm -hmm. We forgive so much more on stage. When it's live in front of you, you forgive maybe a hole in the plot or Mm -hmm. a song that maybe isn't super necessary. It's why so many songs get cut on the way to film Mm -hmm. because film is so harsh and unforgiving. And so you either have to dig deep into the realism or you have to embrace the theatricality. And I think... That sort of with the West Side Story movie, when you when you rewatch it, 
it that is it, it what makes it work best is that as it continues it it does embrace that it's just it starts off straddling yeah it's trying two. to have its cake and eat it yeah. too and for me it doesn't work i would rather i think that the movie would be perfect if they started off the bat of like this is not new york city this is an impression of mm-hmm. new york city and it doesn't really do that not at least not for the first half it gets there I will say, rewatching the movie and then watching clips of Natalie Wood in the Gypsy movie later on for preparation for the Gypsy episode, she does about as well in Maria as I think an actress could who is so focused on doing a semi-decent accent. And she doesn't really, but she, that's she's attempting to. So mm-hmm. that already hinders her. Her co-star is a plank of wood, and she's also not singing in any of these things. She's dubbed the whole time. Yeah. So, like, obstacles upon obstacles. Yeah. She does... Okay, Rita mm-hmm. Moreno obviously steals the show, mm-hmm. as Nina always does. Although, what's interesting is every time West Side Story's been done on Broadway, Maria always gets nominated. Anita has only been nominated the last two times. Mm. Cheetah did not get a nomination. I just, what does that tell us? What does that tell us? Well, so you know what won Best Musical of the Year that West Side Story came out, do you not? Think of the whitest musical of the 50s. Music Man! The Music Man! The Music Man was the avatar of that season. I'm going to start using movie references for what shows where I'm tired of people going, we were the Hamilton before Hamilton. I'm like, everyone loves to say, <laughs> you know what? You were the, you were the Brigadoon before My Fair Lady. You oh. were the, you were the Wiz before Dreamgirls. Like, I'm just going to say that shit. Okay. Because I'm tired of the Hamilton before Hamilton. Or like, no, you know what? I'm going to say, you were the LA Confidential before LA Confidential. Yes, we love branding. We love, you were Terms of Endearment before Terms of Endearment. Gay. <sighs> so Music Man was the super, super big hit. My uh, West Side Story won two Tony Awards. They won choreography, rightfully so, and set design. Nothing else. Craziness, right? That's crazy. Yeah. And then... But the movie swept. Yeah. The movie won 10 out of 11 Oscars. Okay. Okay. So they made up for it. They did make up for it. Well, it's this crazy thing where, like, this thing that was created for theater and was so right in theater and then gets put into a film adaptation where most of the creatives are actually rather not pleased with it that's the thing that makes it go kaboom Mm -hmm. which like isn't that always the case yeah you know but yeah that's sort of where the legacy with west side story really begins is that movie and Mm -hmm. then the reputation of the show comes from that movie and then all the revivals after that the 1980 revival with debbie allen so first of all the clips i sent you i sent you the clips of the 80 west side and jerome robbins Broadway first thoughts on those um, well, I'm, I'm thinking of them in relation to the 09 revival. Yes. So you watched the 09 revival first? Yes. Okay. And then I watched all the clips. Yes. Actually, I sent you Jerome Robbins Broadway last. And I remember se- sending it to you saying, watch this. Cause when you watch it, you go, oh, this is why the show has lasted. Yeah. So they do dance at the gym mm-hmm. and it's just like, I can't explain it. It's electric. Absolutely. There is, yeah, I mean, that like, not to get, like, academic about it, but it's, it's, again, a dance show, and to see all of these people moving in this way, and, like, there's very clearly, like, a language that they're all speaking that's very similar, mm-hmm. but all, it's different enough that you can make a distinction. Yes, 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 and it's, it's, it's so fun to watch, and then mm-hmm. the way, like, when they create the lines at the back of the stage, and they're, like, moving... Across, when they weave in, when and, they out weave in and out of each other and then maria to and disappear. tony are walking to meet it's that's like vis- and it's it's not just like oh this is great dancing visually 
it's so like mesmerizing to watch absolutely it's electric is really the right word it is the kind of performance where you go this all makes sense Mm -hmm. now how this and and jerome robbins broadway is also a production where first of all jerome robbins you know oversaw it it's Mm -hmm. a it was a review of all of his work and they famously like rehearsed for six months, mostly because they were, it was mostly them figuring out what things to include. Mm-hmm. So like they would rehearse a number for three weeks, and he'd be like, "Oh, I don't know, we're not going to do it anymore." <laughs> and so they were figuring it all out. But he oversaw all the West Side Story stuff and like retaught it to them and directed them, so they understood the feeling that went into it, the storytelling that they were doing, and it is a perfect example of what we were talking about about how West Side Story is an impression; it's not a time capsule. The way that the, the way that I said the music is is a stylized version of that era, not realistic. So is the dance. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it, it's not the dance moves of the time. How could it be? If we were to see five minutes of the dance moves of the time, we'd be bored of our mind. You know, mm-hmm. same thing with like if we were to see 1960s stuff, like the mashed potato for three minutes. No, ma'am. Yeah. It's so it's it's influenced by, and then just sort of takes off from there, and mm-hmm. it's. I can't even go... I don't know how to put it into any other words. That's sort of what... That's another example of how West Side Story works as a musical theater piece, is that words aren't enough. Yeah. You have to listen. You have to see. Mm-hmm. The 09 Revival. Famously included Spanish for all the shark stuff. Andrew has just closed his eyes. <laughs> and it is not a closing of the eyes of, I'm feeling myself. It is a closing of the eyes of, Lord, give me patience. Give me strength. So do you know that Arthur Lawrence directed this revival? No, I didn't. So let me give you some context for a second. Arthur Lawrence is perhaps the least distinguished of the four collaborators on West Side Story, at least since West Side Story happened. They come into that show. Sondheim is the least known. Jerome Robbins is definitely the giant. And then they the reviews come out, and Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins are the ones who are like, they get the reviews. And then the movie comes out, and they still are the ones who have like all the press. But then Sondheim gets to become Because there isn't Sondheim. much of a book to work with. Well, the, the book was always made to be an assistance to everything else. Right. It was truly a book in that way, yeah. a musical theater book, in that it was meant to hold everything together. But it doesn't really stand out for... No. Yeah. You take the book away, the, the show sort of becomes a little too much, but put the book on its own and it's it's too thin. Mm-hmm. So after the show continues, and the show has its legacy, and no one thinks about Arthur Lawrence when it comes to the show. People start to think of Arthur Lawrence when it comes to Gypsy. That's really his legacy. I mean, I left the man out entirely at the beginning of this podcast. You did, you did indeed. And as soon as I said Way We Were, you said, ah. But most people, when they think of Way We Were, they think Redford and Streisand. Mm-hmm. No one thinks about the turning point, really. It's considered a good ballet movie, but no one... Arthur Lawrence's name doesn't pop up a lot. And yeah. the latter part of Arthur Lawrence's career, he made it a point to have his name be remembered. And it started with Gypsy Revivals, with Angela Lansbury onward. And then he does the Patti Lapone Gypsy, which is divisive. I'm in a camp that didn't care for it, but that's neither here nor there. You'll find out more about that in the next episode. But with the Patti Lapone Revival being so well-received, he has the cachet to do a West Side Story revival. And he decides to make it his West Side Story and undercuts everything else. So Sondheim's lyrics... For a boy like that, and I feel prettier turned into Spanish, as are the shark stuff in the quintet. You could argue that all the sharks' dialogue is still also in Spanish, and that also undercuts Arthur Lawrence. But Arthur Lawrence does add some of his own dialogue in there as well. It's very in and out. He cuts out some of Robbins's choreo. He undersells some of the music. He drags out all the book scenes, so everyone really 
emphasizes everything. He makes this his West Side, and it's to the detriment of the piece, because mm-hmm. the book is not the thing in that. And when you emphasize the book in that show above all else, the whole thing just becomes a fucking chore. Am I out of line? No. No. So, with this, as we said, with this being your first West Side, you know, still it was very effective, but like... Well, I actually don't think it was a. Oh, it wasn't effective. No, I think the the as I I think I said this earlier, the one thing that affected me was the attempted rape in mm. in at docks. Yeah, that was really the only thing that got me. I maybe laughed once, but I think that no, it, like it felt like the revival took itself too seriously. Yeah, it was so stodgy. The book scenes were a slog. There was there was so much uh, and like. Especially that first scene between Riff and Tony. Riff what? would say a line, silence, mm-hmm. and then Tony would respond. And it was like a bad acting class where you're learning to respond mm-hmm. to another person's lines. Where you have to, like, a, an actor says their line, the other actor has to think about, what's my line? Also, why am I saying it? And mm-hmm. then they respond. It felt like watching a bad acting class. And on top of that, uh, I mean, on top of, it's, it's like riff for me was he said everything a little too earnestly Mm -hmm. there was no sense of camaraderie between him and tony and it feels like that relationship is supposed to be about riff trying to bring tony back into the fold and trying to like kid with him and you know uh attract him back Mm -hmm. to the jets and i didn't get that at all it was like these two people didn't know each other it felt like tony had grown up too fast it was like his sense it was like his distance from the jets like he hadn't spoken to them in years yeah and i don't think that that is supposed to be the case it's supposed to be like a month i think it's supposed yeah so it just it felt like it it took itself too seriously absolutely all of the joy and energy and when i talk when and when we talk about dance at the gym Mm -hmm. all of the staging blocking and choreography of the 09 revival almost felt it felt like it was like choreographed to death mm-hmm. like every movement that actors took in every number was so specific and it was so calculated that it kind of it didn't feel like any of these characters were real it didn't feel like any of them were living yeah. in this space which and so when you get to dance at the gym it's te- it's very technical yeah everybody is moving the same way um there isn't that same sense of electricity that you get from the earlier revivals. There's energy to it, but there's not a sense of storytelling and a sense of understanding. And I think everything felt very sharp. Everything felt very clean, but it also was very sterile. So this is the other thing I'm going to say. Jerome Robbins was a genius, not a smart man. And I have more stories about that when he gets to gypsy at some point. Also, when you were giving some thoughts about this revival of West side, I was like, Ooh, I want to say so many things about the Patty LaPone Gypsy, but I have to wait <laughs> until I record that episode. But I will say, we don't we don't have really any choreo- choreogra- uh, choreographer and director genius on Broadway right now. I'm very confident in saying that. We have very smart and very talented directors and choreographers. And I mean like very, extremely, extremely, extremely. Genius? No. And that's not to say anything negative about them we jerome robbins bob fossey they only come along every couple of decades really and i mean director choreographers who not only 
are phenomenal storytellers, but really think outside the box of what they can do, what we can do, what everyone can do, and have this drive about them and this uniform vision that just put, brings it all together. The downside with that kind of genius, and we see with people like Mozart or acting geniuses like Marlon Brando, is that A, they can either burn out really quick or they are total monsters mm. who don't, because they don't know how to express what they're trying to express and get everyone to get inside their head, they lash out and do terrible things. Mm -hmm. And Jerome Robbins was very famous for that. But the work he created was so immense. And people, I mean, everyone always said, Sondheim even says, like, one of the worst men alive, I would work for him again in a heartbeat. Because there's something about someone who is so on the pulse of it and and so in touch with their own talent and, and this endless well of creativity mm -hmm. and storytelling and ability. And he puts that every time into West Side Story with the movie, with the original stage show, with the Jerome Robbins Broadway. And when you lose that keeper of the story, and it be, then it just becomes steps. Yeah. And you can like relate as much as you want about, oh, well, you mean this when you say it. Like, no, no, no. You need someone who knows every nook and cranny. And it's not just about how well you kick. It's about what feeling you're putting into that kick. What that kick does 10 steps later for, mm -hmm. this, for the character, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's not just energy. It's fire. And that's why I think Jerome Robbins' Broadway's Dance of the Gym is so fantastic mm -hmm. and better than the Tony performance for the 09 revival. And I'm not trying to uh, denigrate. That's the word that sounds right, if, even if it's not right. So I'm going to say it. I'm not trying to denigrate the cast of the 09 revival. They're all very talented, and some of them have done perf great performances outside of that production. Mm -hmm. But it's very clear to me that Arthur Lawrence used that production as an opportunity to go, my contribution was just as important as anyone else's. Yeah. But that's the thing with West Side Story is that at you, the expense of all everything of else. Well, and I think to be fair, I think that something where if any of the things were more emphasized than anything else, we would lose it. We th we hear symphonic operatic recordings of the West Side Story score all the time. They're not nearly as good. Mm -hmm. Better voices, technically speaking, not as good because they don't have that emotion behind it. It's all supposed to be integrated. Yes integration baby that was supposed to be the theme of west side story both racially and musically hello integrate it all integrate it all honey <laughs> so yeah the thing i'll say about the most recent revival having not seen it and most likely never will i do like one thing about it which is that it was such a departure from everything else that west side story's ever done that it has now sort of opened the door for future mm -hmm. artists to try things with it not necessarily like fuck with the material but to see what they can bring to it, mm -hmm. not be bound by another person's uh, vision. Mm -hmm. One other thing to remember with West Side Story in terms of its representation, and this is where context is very important, and we think about the time it came out. Mm -hmm. 1957, the probably three biggest pop culture entities that included Latin America were Carmen Miranda, and the uh, two Disney animated films, Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros. Yes. So think about that when you come for a West Side Story in terms of its lack of representation. Think of what came before it. And once again, what was supposed to come after and then just didn't. So this is where I tell you, Andrew, write the next West Side Story. <laughs> the East Village Saga. Yeah, exactly. The Midtown East Tale. You lo <laughs> I love it so much. I'll be Maria. You'll be Tony. There'll be no dance. We both have parts in it. <laughs> and it'll be perfect. And Ariana DeBose will just overhang the whole proceedings on the catwalk and just say <laughs> things. It'll be perfect. Um, yeah. Last thoughts on West Side. 
Um, I do want to just because I spent a long time watching it. I do. I do <laughs> want to just jump back to the 09 revival very quickly sure. because you mentioned it that you don't. You don't. As I was watching it, you know, I I think you're right that like. I think that the contributions of the cast are very important. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there are actually some performances in there that are really smart and like really funny that just get lost in, in everything, in else. everything else. Specifically, I want to mention um, Jennifer Sanchez who played Rosalia. And I mention her because mm-hmm. she's from Albuquerque, which mm-hmm. is where I'm from. And I had the pleasure of seeing her in Sunday in the park with George. Love it. It was one of my first trips to New York as an adult and I got to see it. She was brilliant, and uh, I was with a friend who knew her, and we were able to meet her backstage. Um, but I think her Rosalia is hilarious. Yeah. Um, I really think that like her performance for me actually made America better mm-hmm. um, because she really. I think that they. I, I don't know if it's just that like she's fun to pick on, but um, I think her energy in that is really good. I also think the best, my favorite part of that revival for me is I feel pretty. I don't love any of the translations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Lin-Manuel Miranda that, yeah. that did the translations, right? Yeah, Great. I'm sure they're authentic. I'm sure he did his best. I actually think that they're very distracting and they take away from the show quite a bit. Sure. Um, but I love that number because they do throw some... Some love to Rosalia in that one. They yeah. throw some love to her in that one, but they also just throw in some like weird vocalism things that I think are really, really fun. And like, there's a little um, like vocal competition between Maria and one of the girls. Um, yeah. And she like tries to outsing her. It's very fun. And those moments I loved. Um, and I think it's very telling that both of those moments belong to the women. Yeah. See, that was something that actually I didn't really love about I Feel Pretty. So I, I liked hearing you talk about that because that was something that always bothered me because I actually thought it took the fun out and made him more smart-assy. Um, I think I think you said it before that like until One Hand, One Heart, that scene right before, mm-hmm. we don't really – Maria and Tony don't really make any jokes. No. So the reason I loved uh, Miss Siento Hermosa was like – she's make she's maria's actually kind of funny and she's like having a dig at these other girls and they're like it it, it yeah. feels like there's a they actually have a relationship absolutely that that's absolutely true and i think that's super valid i do think it comes at the expense of it being a little more effervescent of a number mm-hmm. but that's just one of the things where it's like you know you take one or you take the other and it both have their merits and their and their mm-hmm. demerits so I do like that it gives her a bit more of an attitude and mm-hmm. shows off another side to her. I miss the bubbliness of it. Yeah. Um, and just the giddy joy. Because mm-hmm. then it becomes a smart-ass thing with Rosalia. But I also like that Rosalia gets some more time. Yeah. She's allowed some more time. <laughs> I also, um, uh, Josefina Scaglione, who played the role of Maria, I actually pr- like her performance a great I deal. I loved her voice. Her um, voice is beautiful. She also... Carol Lawrence does not do it for me. Yeah. Carol Lawrence's voice is fine as the original maria doesn't do it for me it's not my favorite maria song to be perfectly honest it's there's a there's a raw energy about the original that i like it's not all the prettiest voices Mm -hmm. larry kurt is still my favorite vocal tony even if he doesn't pop up to that b and she does really good but you know karen olivo better belter than cheetah yeah uh and i will say that i think the other thing i disliked about the 09 revival was that all of the vocalisms actually felt too safe yeah, I think that very clean and pretty, very clean and pretty. And specifically when it comes to Tony, it was like there was no I, I wanted a little bit. I wanted him to be a little bit more unhinged. 
Like there was so much control. There was so much, you know, accuracy in the way that he was singing. It sounded very healthy. You know, it sounded very technical and like sustainable. But I think what makes Tony interesting is that like he's this young guy who mm-hmm. gets like caught up in in this love story mm-hmm. and it just felt like the way he was singing did not it was it was too safe there was no sense of the danger or the excitement it was just like i can sing these notes and i know that i sound pretty mm-hmm. and that's kind of where it started and ended for me i would honestly say that's true of all of it the that revival never heats up for me the closest it gets is sensuality between um Josevina and matt mm-hmm. in, in tonight mm-hmm. there's a there's an intimate sensuality when they sing tonight together mm-hmm. you can definitely tell like they'd like to have sex but yeah. it's it's more of a like a i mean i would too his chest is like i mean he's a, a very sexy ooh. man but it's more of a coy sensuality yeah. r- and less of a like a let's hold on to each other because we're you know, like we're all that matters in the world that raw sexual energy which is what i think jerome robbins brought to the piece originally and it's what i it's why i actually do like carol lawrence's maria vocally speaking at least when blended with larry kurt because it's this open-throated yeah emotion mm-hmm. um you know, it, it's definitely it maybe isn't the prettiest sounding voice. I think it's better than others. I've mm-hmm. heard many a high school girls <laughs> squeak their way through it, <laughs> but you know, it's yeah. The, that O Nine Revival is very safe. They're all very clean cut. And the thing with these characters is that these are streetwise kids yeah. from working class families, rough and tumble. Yeah, and that has to uh, translate into their actions and to their emotions and into their voice. Yeah. It's difficult when you're doing a show like West Side Story, which is so demanding, and you're doing it eight times a week. You're trying to find a way to do it and be healthy about it. And that cast was notorious for calling out all the time, and that was them playing it safe. Wow. Oh, yes. West Side Story also sort of marked the end of Arthur Lawrence's Broadway run because with Patti LuPone Gypsy, he, like, decided to turn a new leaf as, like, nice grandpa Arthur Lawrence, and I'm uh. going to, like, be liked by everyone. And he did the same thing with West Side Story. And then when it got he got wind that that cast was calling out left and right, he brought them all back in and like old school Arthur that everyone said was a monster came back. And the story <laughs> I actually heard was Karen, so Karen Oliva won her Tony Award as Anita mm-hmm. and then promptly like missed the next three weeks of performances. Supposedly flew. I'm not here to say anything. That's just the facts where she won and then she was out for three weeks. And she had had she's always had attendance issues in the past. Again, these are just facts, not a judgment. Apparently, when he ripped that cast a new one she sent him a private email apologizing on behalf of the cast to which he then responded you can't dance i've always regretted casting you you're one of the worst offenders of attendance and don't try to kiss my ass the the damage is done as soon as your contract is up you're out and then he tried to get matt cavanaugh fired because matt cavanaugh got married and like took two weeks off to get married and go on his honeymoon which was approved by management, so he couldn't he couldn't actually get fired. But the rumor goes is that Arthur the only reason Arthur Lawrence cast Matt Cavanaugh was because he wanted to have sex with Matt Cavanaugh. And when Matt Cavanaugh went and got married, it was very Moira Shear in the red shoes. As soon as she got married, Norman Toff right. was like, "You're dead to me." <laughs> Which, if anyone hasn't seen the red shoes, watch it. I'll discuss it <laughs> another day. Uh, I love that movie. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's a weirdly sour note to end West Side Story on. I just want to say. I think that the movie still has its merits. Give it some time. I know that it starts off kind of odd and slow. If you can really power through, at least to America. If you're still not enjoying yourself by America, you can maybe turn it off. But I think America is really where it starts to turn. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are clips of it online. Jerome Robbins Broadway tonight. Like, 
the show's legacy is strong. It doesn't need my defending, but I'm defending it anyway. And it's interesting to see it as the first show in the You're not defending, you're uplifting the legacy. I Thank you. I'm highlighting the legacy. <laughs> it's interesting, as I'm listening to more Sondheim works, as I'm progressing into the 60s with him and then eventually the 70s, as I said it before, this is definitely the most emotional and non-judgmental piece I think he's ever worked on in a way that so many other shows aren't. There are shows that have so much emotion to them, like Sunday in the Park with George, um, or even, you know, Follies, but there's an esotericness about them that turns a lot of audiences off. And I get why West Side Story is that it has this sort of sweeping uh, majority of people that love it and and just take it up, get taken up by it. So take a listen. Um, I'm trying to think of our West Side Story gal who we're going to close out with. You know what? I don't think we've had Cheetah yet. <gasps> yeah. No Cheetah Rivera. Uh, so... Andrew, where can everybody find you on the social medias? Um, you can find me on Instagram. It's um, at N-D-R-W is a fruit. Um, and you can also go to my website, andrewhmelendez.com. Wonderful. Oh, shit. I had some last final questions I wanted to do. Oh, sure. Round shot, round shot, round shot questions. I totally forgot about these. Okay. Um, Sondheim Rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in the show? Um, it has to be anything in America. Anything in America. Yeah, because I love the changing rhythm. So everything gets me. I had a dream cast. Who would you most want to see in a production of West Side Story? Quick, quick, quick. Sorry, I'm laughing. I'm funny. I'm going to say something controversial yet brave. I want to see Anna Kendrick play Maria. Honestly? No. Okay. But that's my answer. Okay. We love to see it. That's a great God, that's good. Where does this show rank in the Sondheim uh shows for you? Um, I don't I don't know that I have a numbered system, but it doesn't rank very high mm-hmm. because um he didn't write the music. Okay. Somewhere in the middle, would you say? Somewhere in the middle. Okay. Yeah. Uh it's the little things, aka there won't be trumpets. How would you downsize, aka John Doyle roundabout this show? Make it the smallest version of the show you possibly can. Um, a bunch of monkey bars and like, <laughs> impressionistic scaffolding. <laughs> and a kazoo. And a kazoo, yeah. It would, no no orchestra. No orchestra. Synthesizer. We, everything synthesizer. And the, I love it. We love to see it. Okay. <laughs> Y'all can find me on Instagram, Matt Koplik, the usual spelling. Please, if you like the episode, if you like the show, if you like the new format of the show, rate, like, subscribe, write me a little review. Uh, if you don't like the show, write me a scathing review, but keep it five stars. The algorithm is real, y'all. And listen, I may be the least famous of all these Broadway podcast hosts, but let's like try to get me up to like number 95. I think we can do it by the end of 2021, don't you? You're the most famous in my heart, Matthew. Oh, thank you. You're the most famous in mine. <laughs> Make of my heart one heart. I, I, fucked, I fucked up the words. All right. This has been Broadway Breakdown. Take us away, Cheetah.
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 